and welcome to Make My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jake Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner, and today we are bringing the fight to the robots across the galaxy. Welcome back to the Annihilation Saga Conquest. Excelsior. You uh, really sold the drama on that, Elias. It's it's my favorite kind of mode to really sell that that big space opera drama. I mean, we got some real big stakes this time around. Was your I'm um, not surprised? Was your dream job being like that old timey radio announcer guy at the beginning of Clone Wars? <laughs> I wouldn't say that would be my dream job, but I would absolutely love to be hired to do that. Uh, after today, I would love to see it happen. Um, and today we are going to be talking about a different space war, although I've been like really trying to restrain myself from all the Star Wars references I want to make in my own notes. Uh, oh my god, same. Uh, but the writers of these issues sure didn't restrain themselves uh, from referencing Star Wars. We are talking the second half of Annihilation Conquest, which is the fifth uh, part of our Annihilation coverage, which is going to turn into an epic 11-episode uh, uh, coverage of the whole Guardians of the Galaxy run. Yeah, and the most amazing part of this whole thing is, so Annihilation was split into three different parts, Annihilation Conquest is split into two, but the second half of Annihilation Conquest is more than double the amount of issues as Annihilation Conquest Part 1. The collections have about the same number of issues, but because Nova is also included in this, uh, yeah. Yeah. Although I do see why they actually split them into two different collections instead of putting the second the nova 8 through 12 plus the annual in the annihilation conquest trades i get why they didn't do that yeah the the story isn't evenly paced so the there's no like publishing solution to that yeah and we'll get to that well because there's a real turn and uh, you gotta everything around the turn has to be included together yeah exactly um but before we get to the turn we are gonna start by talking about uh Nova. So this is just the regular Nova series that was uh, coming out in 2007. Uh, we're going to be talking about issues 4 to 7 in the first half of this episode. And those uh, were... Oh no, I'm actually seeing here, uh, Elias, that my notes might have gotten a little messed up because I was reading these issues across two different trades that I owned and I was going back and forth. So I lumped... No, that's, that is what I was doing. So the Annihilation Conquest trade starts with Nova 4 to 7. Yeah. And then it does Annihilation Wraith, and then it has the entirety of Annihilation Conquest, and then Nova Volume 2 is Nova 8 through 12 with the annual in the middle there. Uh, but Nova Volume 1 also includes Nova 4 through 7. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I might have... Um, I'm this, this is going to be uh, all the artists for uh, a bunch of the issues of Nova, because I think I lumped them all together. But Nova is written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, the creative team of writers that's going to be taking over this entire venture. Uh, many of these issues were illustrated by Sean Chen and Scott Hanna with uh, Bryce Denham and also, also Wellington Alves. Uh, it was inked by Scott Hanna, Wellington Diaz, and Nelson Pereira. Uh, how do you say that name? Nelson uh, Pereira. Uh, color by Guru yeah. FX and letter by VC's Corey Petit. Um, notable that there are two different guys named Wellington and two different jobs on this creative team. That just, um, I don't think I know a single Wellington. And there's two guys who drew Nova in the early 2000s. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I don't know many Wellingtons. Wellington Alves and Wellington Diaz. No Wellington beef. 
uh, not much of an artist, from what I understand. <laughs> um, but all right, so um, a lot of. I was gonna say, do you want to do the rest of the teams, or do we want to? No, we'll we'll wait to get there. Yeah, we'll check in when we get to the. Um, we'll check in when when we get to the the second half of the Nova coverage. Yeah. But all right, so um, when we pick up. I'm shuffling between my trades. Um, yeah. So we got Nova numbers four through seven, which for anyone who is reading in the trades is the second half of Nova volume one or the first part of the Annihilation Conquest book two trade. Uh, and what I think I didn't really realize until now is that because of the way these were publishing, Nova number four was probably concurrent with the beginning of Annihilation. I don't know how much of a, of a break there was. Uh, so we went from Nova number three, where he's zipping off into space after having uh, good Earth times, checking in with Penance, our good friend Penance. You know. I'm a Penance defender, God, personally. I... <laughs> penance was stupid. Uh... That was a stupid idea. But he was handled very well in these issues. Uh, but then maybe, we but, cut but maybe straight Elias, to... Maybe that's the mm-hmm. secret. Maybe Penance was handled well in most <laughs> issues he appeared in. That's, that's what I am purporting to you. Penance was a stupid idea, but most of the times he showed up and was pretty well written. Huh. Well, as long as they handled him well. So, but then we cut to issue four, but... We we had read all of the Annihilation Conquest stuff in between, so I don't know when these is, were these issues coming out before Prologue, or did they come out after Prologue but concurrent with the other miniseries? What's going on? Uh, Do you know? I don't definitively know. Um, the Nova issues were definitely coming out month to month, and so I guess I imagine that the Conquest Prologue stuff would have started right off the tail of Annihilation proper, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm not definitively sure. I imagine that... Yeah, if you were reading this, you would have been confused because when we jump into this right away, um, Nova and Worldmind are still together. They're working much better as a team, but immediately they're contending with the Phalanx, which if you read that Conquest Prologue issue, that's like a big twist within the issue, and this would have given it away. Yeah. So maybe maybe Conquest came out first, or Prologue came out first, and then this was kind of concurrent with those miniseries that we read, uh, but before Conquest number one. Because these these issues definitely feel like they're supposed to be before the main event. Like, it's really, here's what's up, what's going on with Nova, here's us checking in. But because we have an ongoing, we just won't do a mini like we did with Annihilation. Well, it feels a lot like the um, the, the Kazar miniseries. It's like uh, yeah. Nova is like uh, in this besieged star system, and there's enemies everywhere, and he's like barely surviving, running out of powers... Just uh, totally yeah. on his, uh, on his, on his, like back on his heels, you know. Um, yeah, and I mean that first issue is mostly fighting. It's mostly him showing up at Hala and just getting wrecked. Well, she so she shows up at Hala, and we immediately have this big art team on this. Um, generally, this art style is like real what I remember Marvel House style two thousand seven looking like. Oh yeah, um, it is classic, classic Marvel, and. I, I like this kind of house style. Like, I do like it. It's easy to follow. Um, um, it's usually pretty yeah. visually engaging. It's not over busy, but there's, like, a lot of detail. Yeah, I don't love the way the, the you know, static eyes are done. It's less creepy. 
which is sad. I liked the really like it's kind of like bugs coming out of their eyes. I liked the the, the visceral reaction of that. It's horrible. But this, it's just like oh, I guess their eyes turned into you know little TV screens. Yeah, unplugged TV screens. Um, yeah. Yeah, the the art is like really clear. It holds your hand at every turn. Like there's a lot of diagrams and there's a lot of like holographic displays explaining what everything is. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's easy to follow. Um, but um, you turn the page to like page two, and boom, you're hit with uh, the reveal. Gamora is the first of the phalanx selects we have met, um, which means she's been assimilated to the machine collective, but she's been given enough autonomy that um, she desires only to serve the phalanx but how she goes about doing that is still like up to her and how she mm-hmm. wants to do that is through like freaky assassination because that's what she does best yep yeah and it's interesting that this issue actually opens up a little bit into conquest in that uh, not conquest prologue in in that the whatever the the spire sends out the the signal to lock away Cree space that happens in the first couple pages which helps to explain why Nova is stuck on this side of the the gate and not the other one. Right. And I bet anyone who hadn't read Annihilation Conquest is like, what's going on? What happens? And then when they get later in the issue, that must have hit them pretty hard. I'm sure people probably were reading that and this, but <laughs> you never know. I mean, we were for for our purposes. And yeah. Um, yeah, so Richard tries to escape, and there's this force field around the system now, and he just, like, cra- literally crashes and burns into the side of this as fast as he can possibly go, and it's pretty grisly. It's really grisly. He's just, like, done. And then we cut to this new character. We yeah. We meet Corel, who is not Space Bounty Hunter, but... No, no, she's, um, that... she's a medic, and uh, she's been stranded mm-hmm. on the planet Dreslar... Uh, since the end of the last Annihilation War, which has been like a couple months now. So they've been here, uh, they have no way of getting off, no way of communicating, and uh, it's just this crew, and she's like the highest ranking member, and everyone else is a bunch of dumb grunts, and it's just like a a totally new vibe, a new cast of characters, and I kind of loved this switch, actually. Same. It felt like it was a nice bait-and-switch. It kind of reminded me of what I liked about Godzilla 2014, with interesting uh, spoilers spoilers for Godzilla 2014 uh what happened to Gr- Brian Cranston I liked the bait and switch aspect of it I just didn't like who they did the bait and switch with yeah I uh this uh, reminded me because we got dull 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 McMayo out of it um oh in terms of Godzilla I was like yeah in terms of Godzilla no here I love Corel. she's the best yeah so Corel shows and... up she's got like so much personality she's got this kid that she hasn't been able to see because she's been stranded um she's got this like cool patriotic sense of duty but also she wants to like protect her crew just like so much character comes across and then also I like um I, I guess this is a matter of taste but I like the running joke that everyone in her crew is like pretty into her and attracted to her but like keeping it under lock because they're all professionals but like every so often somebody like uh jibes each other about it and they're just like you're just checking out the captain and they're like yeah i i thought that that joke was really funny actually i mean it also is a bit of a they're commenting on you know the nova uniforms being skin tight right because we've only we only see richard who 
was outfitted for war too. Yeah, well, and that's so. Uh, Corel um, sees Richard crash after his like enormous collision, and uh, she goes out and World Mind uh, jumps into her and makes her like the first soldier in Rich's new Nova Corps. Basically, uh, he's yeah. he's still Nova mm. Prime, and he's like a burnt out mummified husk who's like healing. Mm. I, when I first read the end of the issue, I'm like, oh, wow, they killed Richard. I know he's not actually going to be dead, but I can't believe they actually killed him off and they just moved the power over to someone new. But no, they they were expanding the Nova Corps. Yeah, kinda. he's he's still Nova Prime and she's Nova One. And that's like yeah. a different thing. And then the rest of the issue is kind of a alien, aliens... Not parody, but that that's kind of the feel. It's that, that action heavy, they're you've got the scrappy young crew. Not young, but you know what I mean. Well they're also um I, th- none of them are like coded heroic. They're all like, uh, oh, oh yeah. he's innocent and she's kind of uh, ditzy and uh, like all of them, their endearing traits are how unformidable they are. Yeah, you've got Flagpole, you've got Dimples. They got names like Flagpole and Dimples. <laughs> I love those names. Uh, uh, there's just a lot of fighting. They're trying to figure out, and the conflict they gave Corel is fantastic because she's kind of, she's not sure. She wants to stay here and protect everyone, but she also wants to save her son. But the world mind wants something completely different. It wants her to stay, but only protect Richard. And so there are all these these con- inner conflicts with her. Uh, and then the failings come in with uh, a brand new design, which is kind of a hybrid of the new Dominion-style design mixed with what we later see as an older design. Uh, like I said, I don't know that much about the failings. I like. So I thought this was a good look for them, more or less. Um, I their presence yeah. kind of also reminded me of the uh, those episodes of Next Gen where the Borg like really slowly walk across the ship, but they're invincible, and every time you kill one, there's like another one pops up. Yeah, and they're kind of just absolutely wrecking this crew, uh, and they get flagpole and dimples. Oh yeah, dimples gets decapitated. Oh. It's brutal. It's brutal, and then but flagpole just kind of goes out. It's so sad. He's just, oh, he's just he's just kind of stabbed while shooting someone else, and he goes down. And Corella is is screaming, and then uh, uh, Worldmind says it is critical you pay attention. Which, she goes, it's critical I do something. Which yeah, it, it's I think it's really um, says a lot about Abnett and Lanning that in so few pages they can build up so much character. You care about all her crew within like four pages. She's got like such a rich inner life and conflict and you really get what motivates her. Nothing feels like about her feels like flat or um or like stock, right? They're not just like mm-hmm. uh, dragging like uh, space captain cliches in order to build this character. Like uh, everything yeah. feels like part of this uh, person's inner life and they seem really three-dimensional. And while her yeah. crew's getting slaughtered by the phalanx, and she is um, uh, flying away as bait. Yeah, flying away as bait because she's like uh, improvising in ways that World Mind doesn't approve of. But ultimately, uh, she's uh, turns out to be right, which I think is super cool. Um, she doesn't realize that Gamora is doing her assassin thing. Now, what I love about this is. In none of the movies have they really shown that Gamora is like the galaxy's greatest ninja warrior. She's like yeah, and here they really sell that entirely silently like you've got your point of view is with with Gamora but also a little bit off from it um 
because there like there's some shots that I'm like, all right, I get the dy- the dynamics of it, but the posing is a little. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't have a I don't have a word to fill in, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but the I, uh, I think uh, yeah, the way this art team draws women is definitely uh, the worst thing about this art team, and that's a real unfortunate uh, common trait in a lot of Marvel House style guys of this era. Oh yeah, um, and but they but her her evil face, gold. Yeah, great She's evil gold. face. I love her slinking through the shadows. I love how strong she looks when she like drops down on people and uh, is chopping up all the Kree soldiers who are coming to stop her. Um, and what's really interesting to me is we've stepped back from the ultraviolence that was more present in Annihilation in terms of the way it's shown on. Like, there's a lot of violence, but there's not a lot of blood. There aren't a lot of, like, limbs coming off. A lot of striking like, silhouettes. Action. Yeah. A lot of... Uh, and it's more striking. Yeah, and the, and the the color style is diff- different too. There, like I I mean I am turning around and there is some delimbing and some splashes of blood, but it's mostly uh, black and shadowy instead of being like a yeah. really GTA cutscene rendered where it, they're trying to get the the splatter realistic. Yeah. Um, I just I feel like if you've only seen the movies, you think of Gamora as kind of like a meathead tough girl who picks up really big guns and screams a lot and like charges into fights. And I love that she's like this evil assassin ninja who's just like really cunning and really sneaky and uh, really precise. I think that's a much funner vibe. Yep. Anyway, she uses said infiltration abilities and she gets to where Richard is uh, convalescing and she leans down and she gives him a glowy purple kiss. Um, kiss of death. Yeah, and when uh, it zooms out, there's a real uh, cheesecakey shot of her just like looking like a. Um, uh, a it's pulp. a pinup. It- yeah, it is a pinup. What's the name of the um, uh, the cover artist? Of- Frank Cho? <laughs> J. Scott Campbell? Um, no, I'm thinking of somebody from uh, from the tw- the 1920s. And I, uh, oh, 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 oh. And I can't remember. Older, her- older. Yeah, but I can't remember her name. And I'm, I'm blanking out. Um, I. Not Marilyn Monroe. No, no, she was an artist. I mean, not remembering this is not interesting. If I remember, I will. Um, I will share. But it reminds me of her art style a little bit. She did a lot of, like, Conan the Barbarian, like, magazine, mm. like, chained up uh, girls in, like, bar- in, like furs kind of covers. Mm-hmm. And a lot yeah. of people don't know that a lady drew um, a huh. lot of those covers. No, I didn't. That's fascinating. Like, a lot of those sword and sorcery covers. Yeah. I like the page that precedes Mar- it, though. Her name was Margaret Brundage, and I highly encourage uh, you to Google the her after this episode, and for our uh, listeners to Google her. She's a really ha- had an interesting life, and there's a cool episode of another podcast called Imaginary Worlds that's all about her, and I recommend it. Anyway, this uh, Gamora like clinging her the body language where it's like this like ass out, but her like hands on Richard's chest. It's it's classic sword and sorcery posing like you will see this on a lot of like like john carter of mars exactly fo- uh covers or whatever um pulpy cheesy yeah which doesn't make it a good artwork by any means but um i think that's what it's uh what it's trying to draw from and more importantly it really does sell this moment where gamora as like the bad guy here has uh, corrupted richard with the um the Techno-organic virus. Kiss of death. Yeah, through through this kiss of like death. It, it, they really are, are leaning into all the different tropes around it, too. 
Yeah, and that's They've the thing. Synthesized is it's, it. Yeah, it's just real. It's real classical. It's uh, real throwbacky. It feels <laughs> like to me now. But so that's a great setup for uh, the most of the remainder of the story, which is um, Corel is on the run, and um, Richard, Ed, who's got most of the Nova Force and way outclasses her, and Gamora, who's the deadliest woman in the galaxy, are just like hunting her, and now she's on the run for her life. And they've yeah. done such everyone a, else is dead. Yeah, everyone else is dead, and they've done such a good job at selling her, and now that's all that's left is her wanting to see her son. And we just get, like, a great jumping across planets battle for a second. Unreal. Yeah, she's chasing she's chasing Richard, and she's been tasked by Worldmind to kill Richard uh, and Worldmind by extension because Worldmind is kind of sequestered away in such a, um, in such a way that Worldmind isn't infected yet, but Richard is. And so Worldmind's like, you got to kill me before I get infected or we're done. The universe is over. Yeah, which really, uh, they, they've done a great job selling the stakes of this one and continue to do so. Like, uh, World Mind has been so into self-preservation this whole time that uh, changing that directive, you, you're like, oh, this is, uh, we are too far gone. Yeah. It's going to take a miracle. Serious. So she's flying off on her vengeance mission, and Gamora and Richard are hunting down Drax. Yeah, we just jump. <laughs> we just get Drax. He goes out like a chump. Drax does go out like a chump. I mean, fully powered up Richard. Yeah. What is what powers does Drax have? He's like stronger than average and like pretty durable. But like, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's the that's the whole Nova Force, baby. Um, it's uh, it's something. And I really like the Nova Gamora evil dynamic. Um, I think this must have happened in a lot of formative uh, superhero cartoons I watched as a kid, and like the DC animated cartoons that like the hero mm-hmm. would get like brainwashed by like Catwoman for one episode, and they'd go out and just like, have like a great time doing crimes together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does it for me. I think it's super fun. I like uh, Gamora applauding as Richard like is clocking Drax in the jaw. <laughs> I think I like it more at the end looking back because and i think i'll I'll talk about it when we actually get to the end sure as right here it's very much in the all tropes all the time done without a lot of difference so you're reading it and you're like okay i kind of know how this dynamic works and i'm sure there are papers that could be written about why these these kinds of ideas are are how it works it feels it's very superficial at this point yeah it's very superficial but at the end i think doing it here and the way they do it and the way they kind of explain because of the way the phalanx works or the the what's the name of the virus the transmode virus the transmode virus the way that works and and brings out and the way the two of them interact with it it makes a lot of sense that they would both be just it, this kind of relationship with also the layer of evil on top. Yeah, and without giving the game away, um, Gamora is going to keep on pursuing Richard for the rest of Annihilation Conquest, like the freaking Terminator across many different adventures. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this part with him uh, losing control a little bit and, and dipping into that world uh, makes their eventual emotional catharsis uh, really land for me. But well, yeah, like you said, we'll get to that when we get to the catharsis. Um, but the, yeah, I see, I, I've read this a hundred times, but I totally see what you're saying where if you don't know where it's going, you're like, all right, they're doing the thing where he turns evil for a day and, and the evil girlfriend's into it. But by the end of it, yeah. they've really mined it for, um, for all of the emotional uh, pathos you can take out of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 
Corel shows up on the planet. She poofs in. She bamps Finn, but space bamf. Space bamps in. Uh, and is kind of just trying to take out Richard using every possible trick that she's got and she's barely holding on. Uh, as Richard ch- chases her down, as they crash through buildings and uh, Gamora's somewhere in the distance, kind of, and you're just waiting for her to show up again. You know something's going to happen because that's her deal. She disappears and it's kind of like, uh, uh, oh, what is? Well, she, like an assassin. Yeah. Well, like an assassin, but there's one of the one of those things where you, oh, it's like a spider in the room. You see it, and then you go to take it, get rid of it, and it's gone. And you're just like, where is it? I think where a lot of things be? in terms of Dungeons & Dragons, and Gamora definitely would be a, a rogue assassin. Because all she does is um, she uses her whole turn to, like, set up— She's got the cloak. Yeah, she's got the cloak, and she uses her whole turn to, like, set up a hiding spot. And then she jumps out for one crazy big damage hit, and it's really effective. And then she's got to spend a bunch more turns uh, engineering the next move. She can't do yeah. something every turn. She's got to like really pick her pick her place and um, d- do maximum damage, which is exactly what she does when um, uh, Corel is um, has Richard on the rocks. She is dumping lava on him, just like in Terminator Two. Um, when Gamora comes up behind her and chunk, freaking yeah, takes out my girl Corel, who I love so much for these couple of issues. And it happens right after she's. She's like, I can't, I can't kill him. I can't do it. it. It goes against her moral code. And you're like, good for you. And then Gamora shows up and just like, I am stab, stab, stab. Um, or one stab. Which again, great characterization for Gamora because um, of course she's going to be a really integral part of the Guardians of the Galaxy moving forward. But uh, this is really doing a great job selling. Yeah, Gamora is like a scary and formidable and bad news. Um, yeah. And it also sells kind of that Richard is sort of still in there. His eyes start to de-staticify uh, in that one panel. So I thought was, that's really good. That was a great way of showing that. Yeah. Uh, but then it goes back to the full static after Gamora shows up, like comes up behind him and smashes the little thing for uh, that has the hologram of Zam, her son. And yeah. I, I can't believe they killed off Corel. That is... Um, we, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not promising anything and I'm not uh, saying anything specific, but this isn't uh, – Corel will continue to be a presence in the Nova series moving forward. Okay. Um, we, okay. This wasn't they, all... they did her dirty here. It's fantastic I can't promise, use of I can't promise, story. Yeah, fantastic right. use of story. And I can't promise you're not going to feel like they still did her a little dirty, but um, I am happy that Corel continues to ha- have a very large shadow over where Nova goes. I think it helps that – her entire crew is taken. I think it helps that like this is part of this wave of death. Yeah, uh, these are still and... war stories, and they're selling the casualties in a big way. Yeah, and that ev- even every little piece has their motivations, and some people only get to be heroes for a brief moment, and some people get to have it more, and some people have to like really fall into the darkness first. That's kind of what happens with Nova, and that's what the rest of Nova Seven kind of is. It's establishing, well, how are we going to get Nova out of this? Yeah, and a lot of it is just a conversation between him and himself. Yep. Um, Gotta love those. Yeah, and that's always, again, like you said, straight out of the the sci-fi playbook. Um, Mm -hmm. I like— I gotta— 
Mm-hmm. I just you go first. I just I was gonna say that uh, Corel has a bunch of influence over this though. Like not only it's not just that her death shocks him, but uh, because World Mind was copied into Corel, there's like a, a Corel flavored bit of World Mind now. She became one of the Novas that got like absorbed into the World Mind, and that's ultimately like what gives Nova the strength to fight it off. Yeah, and especially this isn't something that a lot of American comics do. And, like, a lot of times we usually – like, it's one of those things that people critique. Uh, but I, I don't think it always works that way. It's, like, taking panels that have already, already been drawn and using them again, like, instead of redrawing them. There's a big tradition of, of wanting to redraw every single panel in American comics. And something like Mongo, they'll just literally cut out an old panel and slap it on in the back and maybe fade it a little bit or make these montages, which are just – old panels kind of layered over each other to establish the pre- the passage of something. It's not important what's in the panels necessarily, but the cumulative effect. And here, the artist is taking those same panels, the, uh, uh, you've got to do this isn't you, and because it's digital art, you can really zoom in and take on, and zoom out yeah. and take all of the details of it. And so it keeps repeating throughout. And like, I the, like an intrusive thought. Excellent. Like, a... yeah. Like, uh, Nova's trying to act like this isn't a big deal, but he keeps on remembering uh, Corel dying. Um, yeah. Also, uh, we didn't mention this earlier, but just, like, great continuation of getting the, the rhythm of Cree names really right. Yeah. Where they're, like, they're, they definitely sound like Earth words that kind of uh, allude to their, per- like, Cor- uh, Coral, I guess. It could be a name, but she's Corel because the Cree are weird. <laughs> the Cree are weird. Uh, and I do, like... I found it very funny because you've got, you know, grizzled, sad Nova who's been taken over by everything. And then you've got idealized Nova with his nice butt chin. <laughs> and um, an older costume. He's he's in the classical Nova costume, not the, like, Nova Prime spiky costume we've gotten used to. Yeah. Yeah. So he breaks out of his transmode virus uh, funk and beats up a bunch of the... What are they called again? The Phalanx guys? The Phalanx. Phalanx beats up Gamera. Gamera is real sad. She's very... she's She kind of falls a little bit into, like, the jilted lover. Because... Yeah, I get the feeling she's just having fun with that. Like, if I had the opportunity yeah. to play the jilted lover, I would absolutely play it up exactly this much. Gamora, yeah. on the ball with that. Um, yeah, and so she... like, it doesn't seem like she's actually that mad. She's just like, "Ooh, I get a target now, and I can also <laughs> pretend to be mad about the uh, the transmode virus being broken." Although she definitely had, like, I don't think that was Gamora being mad about the transmode virus being busted. That was the, you know, that overlay. Right, but of course, that's the whole uh, scary thing about this is it's hard to tell where one begins and the other ends. Yeah, especially with her. Yeah, because she embraces it so hard. And we also see she's got herself a new partner in crime, which is they've assimilated Drax. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad that they didn't do, which is what normally would happen, which is that they would then start making out. Yeah, you never, ever, ever get the get romantic feelings between Drax and Gamora and anything. But they always like like teaming up and killing stuff together. They're like good yeah. uh, Bash brothers. Especially here, because Drax is like, well, I want to beat up Richard now. <laughs> I'll join you to beat up Richard. I'm angry that I'm angry at him for having dragged me here. <laughs> yeah, which fair. I uh, I can't even blame you, Drax. Um, but here's the deal for the end of uh, end of this miniseries is Worldmind does the math or whatever, and um, and he condescends to Nova when Nova's like, "Wait, explain this to me." He's just like, "Don't even, bud." 
Um, but there is just do it now. Yeah, there's a, a super dense neutron star, and if Nova flies into it, it's gonna give him a boost, and it's gonna like lo- uh, charge up his gravimetric powers, and maybe give him enough juice to punch through the force field that's like binding up Kree space. Um, and uh, there's like a great space sequence. I, I love stuff like this where. Um, it's a, right. This I've never flown into a neutron star, and I don't really understand the danger. So it's, there's a lot on the writers and the artists to sell me on that, and they really do. And I really feel like each step of this, I uh, I get what they're contending with. Yeah, but uh, it's scary. It's it's you know it's really rending people apart, and it's pretty intense. You're like you can tell why this isn't something Richard does on the regular. Yeah. Um, and Richard, Drax, and Gamora all fly into it, and there's like a big, crazy psychedelic explosion. And at the end of it, we're we're not exactly sure where they are. Although we do know that uh, Drax and Gamora are two light years away from Nova when they pop out. Yeah, um, like that's that's kind of just that's this this epilogue. Two light years away, they pop out. They're like, well, it's time to hunt him down. Dun, dun, dun. And that's the end of this this kind of section. What's so funny we get... is um, in my trade, I don't know, in my, my paper tra- back trade, um, there is then a page that just has like four short paragraphs that summarize the rest of the Nova mm-hmm. issues. Um, and that's wild. We, I, I, we continued on to read those Nova issues. Um, so we are not going to talk about the summary. But I think that's – having read them, that's crazy. This page has no impact whatsoever. Those issues are fantastic. What? Oh, I didn't even read these because I'm like, oh, it's a summary for something. I'm just going to skip over it because uh, <laughs> I'm reading more. But you're right. You're right. That's that's just such a sad way to do that. You definitely need the other Nova trade. The Nova issues are, are phenomenal. Oh, my God. I'm glad I skipped it. Otherwise, I would have been super spoiled for what happened in those. A bunch some, of good... of those some of those twists got me. Yeah. Uh, at this point, by the way, Lies, so this is your first big foray into Abnett and Lanning as a creative partnership, right? Correct. How are they working for you in the grand scheme of uh, of comics writers you like? They're working really well. Uh, they've got a good it's good bounce, good fun. Uh, they definitely kind of have the decompressed storytelling down, but not too decompressed. Like, they're not Bendis levels of, we're definitely writing six to seven issues per arc, and this could have been three or four. They're writing three or four issues that feel like they should be three or four issues, but they've also got that serial feel to it they they, you've got your each issue has a bit has a big arc it's got its central thing uh and it's also building towards something else uh we don't really get like the single issues with little bits for what's coming next but on the whole it's it's i think it's the right amount of story per issue which is very nice it's it's not a balance that a lot of writers nowadays have in the superhero comic verse. Yeah, although I think um, a big the pacing on a big run like this would be very different. I, I I don't know if they would have gotten a chance to tell a story like this. But true, um, true. I'm gonna I'm gonna check in with you occasionally because this is about the turning point where they clearly become the main architects of the thing. But pretty soon they're gonna be the only ones writing. It's gonna be them and a ton of artists, and they're gonna write every issue. Wow. Um, yeah. It feels it feels good. Like it doesn't feel necessarily groundbreaking, but it feels like I would be picking this book up if it came out. Yeah, every every week. And this is a I mean not we're every not, week every month. A couple of uh, 
a couple of years from now, issue-wise, is about when I'm getting back into... This is 2007. I'm getting back into comics 2008, 2009. And by 2009, I'm picking up all their issues regularly. Wow. All um, right, so... Yeah, so next we're going... ready? Yeah, I sure, sure am. So now we're going to talk about a mini-series that was part of this overall story called Wraith. Um... Wraith was written by, um, do you know if, do you know how to pronounce the, his name? I am realizing I have liked his work for a long time and I have never heard it said out loud. Javier Grio Marksuk? I mean, when last time when we were talking, or two times ago, three, when we were talking about, uh, the Super Scroll Mini. That's right, that's right. Uh, he wrote that and the same thing. I don't, I can't remember how to pronounce the X. That's what's, that's what's tripping me. Well, regardless, uh, just to recap my love for him, he was um, a big writer on the early seasons of Lost, and which is, I was like a big Lost person that was out when I was in college, and he's just like a great uh, sci-fi, fantasy, law and order TV writer who's like a, who likes comics and occasionally dips his toe in them, and I think he's a really strong writer overall, although um, you're going to find out uh, through our talking about this that I think that this miniseries is nothing. Ah. I've got a I've got a pronunciation. It's Javier Grio Markswatch. Markswatch. That's that's cool. It's probably Markswatch. Although it's probably less of a hard Markswatch. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, um, there we go. Yeah, I, I, this is an insecurity of mine that I put on the air a lot. Um, yeah. Wraith is written by Javier Grio Markswatch, uh, illustrated by Kyle Hot, uh, colored by Gina Going Rainey, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. Um, and um, Wraith is pretty much what you would get if you just uh, ask somebody to list every single 2007 cool guy cliche and we're like, okay, that's a character. Yep. Oh, my God. It is... Honestly, it's a lot more fun. I liked it a lot better than the Super Scroll Mini, and I think part of that is... I think Mark's Watch has gotten better as a comics writer. Like, he learned from what he did in the first one and brought it here. And I think Kyle Hotz... Hotz? Uh, Kyle. Yeah. I think Kyle Hotz uh, is a much better fit for the story that he was writing. I th- Kyle, I think, compensates maybe if there was any weaknesses in the script. He brings out, he's like, okay, this is how we can structure this scene so that it has the, the most impact, which allows... Javier to focus more on kind of crafting the the narrative across it. Now, is the narrative all that interesting? No. Yeah, not really. But, so I so yeah. Wraith will not have a big impact outside of the series. Um, but I was so so curious about him because they introduce him here and it feels like he's supposed to be a big deal and like he ends up being an important MacGuffin to the overall story. But his personality never enters into it. His motivations never matter to me. Um, and then he vanishes after this and is not seen again for a very, very, very long time. Um, but he started appearing in like group shots around the time that, um, Donnie Cates was writing Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Donnie Cates was just like, oh yeah, Wraith is hanging on the background. And if you know anything about Donnie Cates' style, that actually yeah. makes a lot of sense that he would think Wraith is a cool character. Yeah. And that as soon as he put him in the background, he was going to become the most important being in the world. Yeah, and I mean, then he's not yet, but and then uh, we'll talk about his story. We'll touch upon it briefly, but a lot of this got folded into Donny Cates's backstory for uh, Knull. I know that the case is supposed to be silent, and I refuse. 
Um, yeah, I'm starting to come around to you on that. And uh, King in Black and, and all of uh, the Donny Cates space mythology stuff um, gets tied into some of the stuff introduced here in this Wraith series. But Wraith has no panache. It's clear that he's supposed to kind of be like the crow. He's... Um, <laughs> uh, I, I wrote that he's basically just Evanescence Lobo. Evanescence... There was an Evanescence Lobo in DC Comics. That really, <laughs> they really tried to do that. Um, oh, man. It's... Uh, yeah, he he's just kind of floats around and he broods and he beats up the phalanx and he goes from place to place brooding and beating up the phalanx. Ronin shows up. He um, There's this new character called Raven. Oh, yeah, we got it. Red hair. Yeah, let's stop for a second. I love Raven. I think she's got a great design. Not a lot of personality in this series either, but um, she's just got like a cool bandana and this like bright, bright hair and a cool costume. And I could see Raven showing up a bunch more and like kicking a little bit of ass. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. She she's kind of like a pirate. Yeah, she's got like a cool pirate look. Uh, yeah, I mean the whole thing is it feels like, and I love Treasure Planet. <laughs> That's the vibe I was starting to get, and I wanted more of that. I think Raven was based on a character, um, by Bill Mantello, uh, from Sword of the Swashbucklers. I I. I'm almost certain that Javier read that series and was like, I want to do pirates in the Marvel universe. There's also a lot of both, uh, both Wraith and Raven look a lot like characters from a uh, Grimjack by John Ostrander, oh. which is an eighties, nineties, uh, sci-fi comic that I was uh, yeah. dabbling with recently. Yeah. Um, what, what that, I found really funny is that, this you're right this is exactly the kind of thing that that donny kids would find very interesting <laughs> but also the artwork ryan stegman is channeling this type of kyle hots this this era like he he's changed his style a lot and while hots is ch- channeling kelly jones like they're all they all kind of have that similar through line but stegman in this era I don't know if we've read any. Looks very different in a lot more nineties. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's a really interesting continuity to draw. I also think that um, that uh, uh, Grio Marks watches um, script is probably a little bit. I, I don't want to insult the guy because I do think he's really good, but the kind of script you see from somebody who's primarily doesn't write in the comics medium, like uh, there's a lot of pages where there are these, uh, there'll be a series of three panels all showing the same action at different stages, like uh, her throttling, uh, Wraith throttling a space bike and then uh, hitting the pedal and it'll just like uh, go around him. And it's like not that interesting. It's not that dynamic. Um, it, it seems very yeah. much like a TV visual idea that's being kind of poorly translated into a comic. Um but uh, moving on very briefly, Ronan is one of the selects of um, of the Foulings now, and um, so is Colert. Well, not really. But Kalert not really. Colert is, is is stuck. Like he's a prisoner. They're trying to make him a select, but he's like, no, I won't. I refuse. And Praxagora is there. Yeah, and Praxagora. Um, you know, she's one of our veterans of the first Annihilation War, but she didn't leave a big impression there. She doesn't leave a big impression here. But I was kind of like, yeah. oh, hey, my friend. Yeah, she does some, she does some, a couple things, but she is entirely overshadowed by Clert, uh, literally and figuratively. <laughs> and it's, uh, Praxagora's done dirty. 
Yeah, Praxagor is done pretty dirty. Clert uh, acquits himself okay. He's got a lot of uh, mm-hmm. personality. He's real uh, bitter and sour. Um, Misogynistic. Yeah. Um, pretty That's part. That is personality. Not yeah. good personality. Not good personality. Um, uh. But anyway, we um, and then we get, I'm going to really just like, uh, sorry if I blow past this a little fast, but it turns out that no. Wraith was a little Cree kid named Zach Dell. And when I was complimenting the Cree names for uh, Ray Van and Corel, I do not extend those compliments to Zach Dell. Zach Dell is a dumb Cree name. Um, his family was killed by some, like, other Cree extremists when his dad was researching these immortal ghosts called the Exelon. And it's a bunch of continuity stuff. Uh, there's just, like, a lot of different factions and steps and little bits, and it's, like, way more than is necessary. Uh, none of this stuff has any connection to anything I'm that interested in. It's and- a huge info dump, and I'm like, okay, so this is gonna, these are just the, the symbiotes, but they didn't want to use the symbiotes. Yeah, and so I looked it up because that seemed so close that I, I thought that someone must have made the connection. And sure enough, Donny Cates has, and that some other guys have written some one-shots here and there uh, yep. that the Exolones were like the first batch of symbiotes, but they were like failed. And um, the Wraith's family like uh, figured out a way to harness their like uh, failed abilities or whatever. And that sounds like a, I like that. That's additive. That takes this thing that exists in the universe and tries to do something with it. But like, again, I'm not like clamoring for for any of this yeah and then we get some more fighting he he successfully frees uh what's his oh he he sees his dead father and he's like yes father i shall become a wraith i shall become a wraith and he frees himself and then he frees the super scroll and then he frees or i guess prexor frees herself i don't know and they all meet up with raven and they go on their big big escape Oh, and then they find the Supreme War. Yeah. Uh, in well, the and basement. This is the one thing that's important to the overall arc of Conquest. Yeah. Because it turns out that, with, like with a lot of Marvel stories of this era, there's one new character whose ability is canceling the unstoppable ability of the bad guys. Yeah, and it's Wraith. Yeah, and Wraith can, um, with his magic touch, he could heal you, and you're no longer assimilated to the Phalanx. And he probably can't do that for the entire Empire, but like, all right, we have our living MacGuffin, we have our Layla Miller or uh, whatever, just like Marvel of this era loves new character who could undo the plot. Exactly. But also uh, the Supreme War trapped in the basement and is about to be used on experiments, and Ronan is like, no, I refuse, and then he gets threatened by evil skull creature, and he's like, fine, whatever, I'll do it. And they have a big fight. Fight's pretty and... cool. It's a, okay, it's a good fight. Yeah, the fight's fine. Uh, it, it all is mostly inconsequential action. He sees his father. Turns out his father was actually a manifestation of the of the the supreme intelligence, the supreme war. Which, you know, we saw that already in Annihilation. No, 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 no. We saw that in Quasar. Yeah. Um, saw that in Quasar. I, I guess like, I, I kind of like Cree, uh, mm. these like desperate Cree being visited by their like computer god king. Yes. Yeah. That's, like, kind of thematically compelling to me. Because um, I, I always thought the Supreme Intelligence is like, oh, he's a smart head in a jar. Wow. So, like, um, them playing with, like, his mystic powers and his uh, uh, cultural impact and all these different, like, uh, sad Kree. I, I kind of like that. That's kind of something. Yeah. And then, uh, what's his face? Wraith allows the weapon to blow up and it takes out all the phalanx in this region? I don't know. It's kind of kind of unclear. Ronin is freed, and he's like, "Please kill me." 
I cannot live with this shame. And Wraith is like, well, that's why you're going to live with this shame. And then it ends with the splash page of Wraith being super broody with rain around him. Um, the most interesting thing to me about this page was when I turned to it, something fell out of my trade. And it was a Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Rings bookmark that was clearly from a Scholastic book fair when those movies were in theaters. Because mm-hmm. on one side of it, it has www.lordoftherings.net. And on the other <laughs> side, the Galadriel side, it has America Online keyword, Lord of the Rings listed. Oh my god. And yeah, and there was a very narrow window of time when that would have been put on a bookmark. And only a very narrow number of places where I could have obtained it. And that was what was in the middle of my trade, and that's lovely. That is lovely, especially when it's in the Wraith section. Um, oh, Wraith. Yeah, I, I guess last time I read that was at my parents' house or something, and I found that on a bookshelf. Um, I guess. Anyway, um, so that's the intro, but we have a lot more to cover today, a lot of really exciting stuff to cover. So. Yeah. We are going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with the rest of our coverage of all of Annihilation Conquest. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3Cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, no bad Dandadio impressions, this is bad, what the f***? And an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us and welcome back Eh, eh, eh? sorry i'm still a little bit shaken from all that brooding Uh, i have to go find (laughs) the nearest gargoyle and sit on top of it i don't have gargoyles near me i i'm missing out on some prime brooding time ah you are missing out on prime brooding time but now we have reached the main the meat of this section annihilation conquest numbers one and two so what we did, me and Jake, at least at least I did, I, I'm assuming you did this too, was we read this in the Comic Book Herald uh, reading order, which was reading Annihilation Conquest 1 and 2, and then jumping over to Nova, reading 8 through 10 and the first annual, then jumping back to Conquest for issues 3 to 5, back to Nova for issues 11 and 12, and then back to Conquest for issue 6. I might have done a little uh, less the tr- jumping than that. I might have fudged it a little bit, but I, I jumped back mm-hmm. and forth a couple of times. I think I read them in yeah. long. I think I read like four issues of Conquest, then eight issues of Nova, then one issue of Conquest. I just something more like that, but yeah. it's okay. As long as you finish Nova before the last issue of Conquest. That's yeah, really, that's essential. Um, that's essential. We should mention that Annihilation Conquest is written by Dan Abner and Andy Lanning. Uh, it is illustrated by Tom Rainey with Wellington Alves, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Frank D'Amarta with Guru FX, and lettered by VC's Joe Caramanga. And when we get to those Nova issues, I will uh, talk more about uh, the artists on them because there's a couple of my favorites actually showing up for some of their earliest Marvel work. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Very excited huh. to get into those. Um, but so, so we get to Annihilation Conquest number one, and we open with my main man, my favorite guy in all of space. Lord Blastar, if you please. I will. I will give Blastar the respect that he deserves. Although uh, I love how here it's Lord Blastar, and he has done jack diddly to earn that in the comic. 
Uh, what are you talking about? Blastar is a leader of men. He is leading the Kree in the resistance against the Phalanx, and he's doing an adequate job. But he has not earned Lord quite yet. I offer him his lordship freely. Blastar <laughs> is the best character in Marvel Cosmic. His power is that he is a giant space gorilla with exploding fists, and he's got a great attitude. I would be his friend. Yep, and he gets just brutalized. Yeah, just right brutalized. away. Just gets uh, captured and murdered, like, right off the bat. Yep. That's um, sad. So I, I guess one weird thing about the way this Conquest miniseries is paced is there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of threads, and every issue kind of checks in with all of them, which uh, makes it feel like one of those weirdly paced Netflix shows or like Game of Thrones or something, where a lot of the issues you're feeling like nothing's really happening. We're just like checking in with everybody as the story inches forward. See, I didn't... I, I guess that is true. I never felt like that. That I felt like... Sure, we were moving forward and we were checking in, but I guess I like that kind of stuff. And it never felt bloated. It never felt like there were too many characters that we were following because I think each set of characters had something distinct from the others. And the distance between them, like it, it was properly paced between each segment. So we got enough to be satisfied with each segment without feeling like, oh, I wish I could jump to this other one sooner. Uh, yeah, there are I, definitely I, series where I've been reading. I'm like, okay, why can't we go back to X, Y, or Z? Yeah, I broadly agree with you, but um, at least for my note taking, sometimes I would uh, like flip back four pages and then uh, want to put my notes together because there'd be two scenes in an issue that were really one scene spaced out. Yeah. So like, yeah. I'm talking about Blastar getting uh, tortured to death, which doesn't happen for a little while now, because now we're jumping over to uh, Philovella Moon Dragon, who are still bringing Adam Warlock up to speed, which is where we left them at the end of last episode. True, but Blastar still gets taken out like a chump in those first few pages. He gets taken out like a chump, but he does it like a real professional chump. <laughs> True, and uh, I guess as we learn later, that was on purpose. I don't know. When we get there, I'll, I'll question you about that. <laughs> but we cut over to, to Philovel and Moondragon. Philovel is, you know, narrating in as, you know, serious a narration as we can get. And it's really dark. It like, is really dark. Really, we see really a kid really get dark. vaporized. Yeah. And Real cute kid with a pink hat. I was quite affected by that page. That was horrifying. Yeah, it was even horrifying. Though, Not everyone. Even though it wasn't like viscerally, you know, here's the blood and the eyes and like going schlock horror, but it was. It definitely they did a really good job of it. Yeah, it feels like uh, they would not have done that as as lightly in a modern comic, it, it, and thus it feels of the era. But for me as a reader, it still feels effective. And I wonder if a reader who was like born after these comics would feel differently. Probably, I imagine sensibilities change. Probably. And then it turns out that Philovel was actually narrating this story on the planet Terma, which is a Cree outer world, to our favorite golden boy who has to have a very uh, conveniently placed <laughs> egg cocoon arm, Adam Warlock. And he's, yeah. he's very mad that he's been woken up early from his nap. So Adam Warlock is like a big character in Marvel Cosmic, one of the biggest, and this is our first time seeing him in this run. Is this your first time with Adam Warlock in anything ever, Elias? No, like I said, I, I've read Infinity Wars, the That's right. modern thing, but he, I don't think he ever appeared in Earth's Mightiest Avengers. If he did, I don't remember. I always confused him with Korvac. Yeah, who is a, a big bad guy from the time yeah. that he was... 
popular. I do know that he and the Magus are related in some way, and they have to do something with Thanos, and that's, but that's be, all yeah. like Infinity Gauntlet stuff, and that's going to be a that. big part of this run, actually. Really? Oh yeah, we'll be touching okay. upon everything you just said. That, but that, that comes later. Um, cool. Yeah, that's so prophetic I, now. Yeah, well, which, what's cool is that they, I think they kind of do a slow job at introducing you to Adam Warlock and his story. It's more about vibes for this. Yeah. And what we learn about Adam Warlock is he is like, he was he was built by Earthlings to be the genetically perfect uh, being, uh, which is real creepy and eugenics-y, but that means oh, that yeah. he is like golden. Um, and what I like about Adam Warlock is he's from like the funky psychedelic 70s era, so he's got like these like big, he's contending with fate and destiny. And the way he relates to the universe seems very magical and much more like the force and like uh, like philosophy than it does uh, like science concepts. And he, he just brings a whole different vibe to yeah. Marvel space stuff. And they this gets into like the mining shit that I don't think we have to explore, but they mentioned that he's displaying powers that are more akin to magic than he ever has in the past. And that's a zone that I like Adam Warlock in. I like him as like the magician of space. He is a but warlock. as of right now, he's just got big blue glowing energy he can't control and a costume that looks like uh, evil Zot. Yeah, or like um, a Shazam costume that you bought at the bootleg store. Yeah, a uh, bootleg uh, Black Adam, actually. It's like a mix of those two costumes, Black Adam and Shazam. Um, so as an example of like the psychedelic Adam Warlock conflict... Um, he was damaged by all the deaths in the first Annihilation War. All the death and sadness just, like, hurt his soul, and he's all about souls. So he had to, like, go into a cocoon to heal from all the, the sadness. And Phyla and Moondragon are waking him up prematurely. He's still got to think about how sad he is. Um, but, but now he has to think about how sad he is while beating up the Phalanx, as well as, uh, crud, what's his name? We got Korath the Pursuer. And Thank we also you. have Zemnu, who I bet is a villain that you really Zemnu, like. Zemnu, Zemnu. Because Zemnu, he recently Zemnu. was used very well in uh, Mortal Hulk, which is a book I know you love. I do. I love that book, and I'm so glad I see Zemnu here. He has very little to do. He's just a big yeti creature that beats up Phylavel, beats up Moondragon, and is just kind of there. Oh, and then we also have uh, Snapdragon. Yeah. Um, and these are all, um, I only wrote down Zemnu and Korath. So, Same. Uh, so Snapdragon or whatever did not leave much of an impression. But this, um, the significance no, of this. No, Shatterax. Oh, much better name, Shatterax. <laughs> um, Shatterax is. He looks is, like a Shatterax. That Shatterax is what, uh, they, was like an unused name for Shatterstar, I'm assuming. And then they're just like, I, I don't no know, Shatter Axe. I'm making this up. Anyway, what I like about the, their use of these characters is they are also Phalanx Select, and that's like showing us something about the effectiveness of this uh, Phalanx attack, that they're taking over like other villains too. And specifically, Zemnu is like a, a good villain for Moondragon at this point because she is, as we talked about last episode, stuck in a dragon form and she has psychic powers. And Zemnu, similarly, is a psychic monster. And so they can have like mind battle and physical battle. I, I thought that that was all pretty cool. I was into that stuff. Yeah, there are, it's not really depicted all that much because we got to keep moving forward. Uh, but they have their nice fight, and they all run away because, you know, you got to live to fight another day with, with these guys, especially with good old 
uh, no-memory warlock. So they escape, and we cut away to Ronan's crew as they're kind of bickering a little bit as Ronan's like, well, I have to go to the Kree throne world, which, you know, is now ruled over by Ravenous. Right. At the end of the last issue, uh, the last series, they had to, in the peace treaty, they gave one of their main worlds, the the throne world where all the palace and the center of government was to Ravenous. And, um, well, I would, I would love to talk about that, but first we got to go back to Phyla and, uh, yeah. They, they shoot jumps. Ronan down, and now we're back with Phyla and Moondragon as they as they have flown into this big glowing uh, golden orb inside of the sun, and we find out that inside that orb is the High Evolutionary. Yeah. So you know, you can't have a Kree story without this creepy eugenics mo- asshole. Yeah, so let's talk High Evolutionary for a second. Um because high, when you look at High Evolutionary, he's this, like, big pink and silver robot-looking dude. And I, it would make sense if you thought he was a robot, but he is not. He is a human mad scientist named Herbert Wyndham. And he first appeared in 1966's Thor number 134, which I think is wild because I did not associate the High Evolutionary with Thor at all. Um, yeah. He is a mad scientist from the 20s, which again, wild, um, and his origin has been retconned so that um, in the 20s he was became obsessed with the writings of Dr. Nathaniel Essex, a.k.a. Mr. Sinister. Huh. And, uh, well, that makes sense. And that actually um, makes it... Mr. Sinister is so over the top with his mad science uh, genetic perfection stuff that it feels less like real eugenics and more like... Uh, I don't know, just, like, creepy what happens if I, like, staple an arm onto a guy's ears stuff. <laughs> and I kind of... Yeah. And the High Evolutionary works much better for me in that zone because he's so silly looking. He's so pompous. He's so classically supervillain. I mean, um, in the, his, like, 60s appearances, he's, like, a real Isle of Dr. Moreau type, and he's always uh, making, like, uh, animal men who uh, are all, like, real sad and, and, and like, hyper-evolved. And he's like, oh, no, this man's body with a boar's head is imperfect. I'm so sad about this. And that's what his stories are usually like. Yeah. Although here he's... Eh, I I was gonna say he doesn't do that much, but here he's really leaning into the Kree, gotta make that perfect race type stuff. And I think that sells him well as, as the villain, but not as, like, a... I'm here to devour the entire universe because my universe is getting smaller and I want it all. Stomps yeah. on the ground, stomps on the ground, stomps on the ground. Yeah, Nihilus was uh, was like a great space evil in a way that the High Evolutionary isn't. Um, but and without jumping ahead too much, but we could go. We'll, we'll touch upon this as we go through it. But um, thematically, I, I like his inclusion here because uh, he was hired by the. A supreme intelligence to try to do their the Kree evolution thing, which the Kree are obsessed with. Um, but I like that he's here on like commission and that it has it, ha- it has a history to it. Like this has been going on in the background for a while. And I like his obsession with Adam Warlock here because Adam Warlock's origins are pretty eugenicsy. And essentially, the, the the supreme intelligence is hiring the High Evolutionary. My God, these names um, <laughs> to build the Kree equivalent of Adam Warlock, like a cosmic groovy being of who is perfect. Um, Anytime you deal with the Kree, it always. You always get these names, man. Yeah, but I, I like 
all those threads are thematically interesting to me. It's like stuff about these characters that has been around for a while, and it's combining them in a new combination that I actually really like. Like, I don't think I've ever seen Adam Warlock, High Evolutionary, and Supreme Intelligence get, like, caught up in a tangled web like this before this story. No, and, and they're all used very well. Uh, that, and all that f- fitting their their unique takes on evil, basically. Yeah, and uh, str- strong basis in character. Everyone's got strong motivation, yeah. so you you really feel uh, a dynamic conflict between their different factions, which is what a and lot then, of this ends up being. The end of issue one. Oh we get the boy! Big reveal. Oh, Why man. is the phalanx doing this? Why have they shown up now? What's the impetus? Do you want to take it? Well, I just want to say, on my trade, there is an image of this character on the back cover. There is, and I did not see it because I'm reading digitally. Yes, that's what I was hoping you'd say, so I wanted to ask. um, The first time I read this in issues, this uh, page turn reveal blew my mind because... I was at this point the high evolutionaries involved there's all this intrigue happening but definitely the phalanx are a worthy threat and this raised the stakes for me as a comics reader so much uh the villain is revealed to be none other than Elias you gotta say it Ultron oh my god and he looks great he looks perfect for this he is the scenery chewing standing tall having six eyes and this giant cape i love the cape i i'm mad that he doesn't have a cape in every other one of his appearances the cape is perfect well i don't know i think there are certain versions of ultron where the cape would clash with what he's trying to do like i don't think the rick remender hank pym hybrid would look good with the cape i think he would just look even more ridiculous. Although maybe that's a good thing. Maybe about that's to say, what we want. Give him an even sillier cape. Make it with a high collar, like a Doctor Strange cape. Uh, <laughs> um, so how did you feel when you turned the page and saw Ultron? Did you react as big as I did? I was... Yes, I think. I was absolutely shocked. And I'm like, oh! I, like, I hadn't even considered that there was anything other than, oh, the Phalanx are trying to do this again. Like, something set them off and then they're here. Like that, I hadn't even questioned that. And as soon as the reveal of Ultron, I was like, oh, wait, there's more to this. Yeah. And I'm I, like, I, what, how did Ultron get involved? What influences Ultron had over the Phalanx? Like, what was the, not what was the point, but in a good way. Like that statement, but in a good way, I'm like, why is Ultron here? Yeah, I popped like a surprise wrestling entrance. I freaked out. I just, I wasn't expecting to see him here. Ultron is such a classic Marvel villain. He's so powerful. He's so evil. We've seen him defeat so many of our favorite heroes. And for him to be the influence that's turning this other threat so huge, um, brought it all together. And at this point, the Phalanx has been like the Borg, but um, there was no personality at the core of it. So this is giving them their Borg queen. Only the Borg queen is freaking Ultron. And now the threat seems so much more personally motivated, which I think is a great Mm -hmm. storytelling move. And even though I don't know anything about the Phalanx, so like this, why they are doing this the way they are, no idea. Like I had no conception of what they were like before this so i thought this was just their usual mo but with ultron's introduction you kind of get the feeling that oh maybe something's different and that's probably also why i'm sure people were surprised that uh gamora was able to act the way she was under the influence of the phalanx like uh 
Locutus of Borg would not have acted like this. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, we'll talk more about Ultron because he's the villain of the story. Um, yeah. So now's the the point where Blastar gets brutally tortured, but uh, he gets brutally tortured like a boss because Blastar rules. <laughs> My next note says, Blastar, mm-hmm. no! Yeah. Poor Blastar. Yeah, High Evolutionary shows up and is just the worst. He's so pompous, such an ass, and we just spend, like, 10 pages watching him be cruel to everyone but they need the high evolutionary so they kind of got to take it yeah there's a there's maybe that's what i would have cut out there's just like a lot of bloviating by high evolutionary yeah and then we cut to ronin and wraith on a planet planet throne world and ronin's like i surrender take me to your leader I loved seeing the Annihilation uh, weapons and ships again, like just all the bug stuff. Uh, it was fun because they haven't let us get a good look at them in a little while. Yeah, I didn't actually recognize them at first, but I probably should have. It's just the art the art made them look less buggy and more alien-y. Which, you know, they look like bug aliens, but they don't look like insects that might also be aliens. They look like aliens that might also be insects, which probably a, a distinction without a difference but um this is also around the time when we get introduced to yet another thread in this complicated tapestry and that's God, that yeah. star lord is still kicking around with his proto guardians of the galaxy he's uh, still working with uh, mantis rocket raccoon groot bug and gabe who i'm just gonna call gabe because he's not captain universe anymore he's just a guy named gabe um and it's what happens in the at the end of the annihilation no 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 the uh, Star Lord miniseries. Yeah, the Star Lord miniseries. This is this is the team from the end of that. Uh, I I love how the dynamic between Star Lord and his name is the reverse of how it is in the movie. That's where an he's interesting. Like, please, point. please just call me Peter. He's like he's so so tired. He's so world where he's like I'm just Peter. Please stop calling me Star Lord. I yeah. don't want any of that baggage. But in the movie, he's like call me Star Lord, and everyone's like, okay, Peter. That's I'd never put that together before. That is such an interesting flip to um Yeah. Which probably also helps explain I think that gets to the core of the two different characters. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. I think you really just hit the nail on the head there that um one of them is the type of guy who would insist that everyone call him Star Lord but no one would, and the other one is the kind who would beg everyone to call him by his given name, but everyone calls him Star Lord and he hates it. And that's yeah, and yeah. that's exactly the difference between them. I wonder I, Chris Pratt couldn't have played uh, this version. I wonder who could have. But that's a different podcast. That's a different question. And uh, a younger Harrison Ford. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think he. I don't think he would have. But so Star Lord tries to to motivate his crew, and they're all like, "All right, all right, Star Lord, we'll follow you, but we're not doing this with like pep and vim and vigor." Uh, and turns out that. Good old Blastar was a Trojan horse for Groot's spores so they could make a telepathic map, which is not a sentence I ever thought I would say. Yeah, and freaking rules. It's just like, all right, I buy all that. Sure, Groot's got spores, Mantis has got psychic powers, let's put them all together. Map. But we also, now they have a real mission, because the last time the team was together, they were, like, blowing up a facility. But now they're legit trying to blow up the Babel Spire, which is the center of Phalanx operations, and the thing that maintains the force field around the system. So them blowing it up would, like, we understand would make a big difference to the war efforts. Yeah. And we also get our very first I Am Groot. 
We do, and I'm not sure why he's saying it here. This, yeah, I, we talked about this last time. It's a real mess of uh, figuring out Groot's character at this point because in a couple of pages or issues, he's gonna speak full sentences again. But I am for a Groot. page. Yeah, um, but I am Groot is like his catchphrase now, and not the only thing he can say. Yeah, I think he was. He's just kind of saying it to be snarky. Yeah, like that's kind of how it reads here. Yeah, but that's gonna that's gonna continue to be tweaked a little bit. Yeah. And then we get some more high evolutionary just being the worst. Just panels and panels of him just saying a bunch of BS. Yeah, I'm like, okay, I, I legit almost just skipped over these parts. I was reading it because I'm like, it, it matters, but it's really, it, it's a lot of fluff, unfortunately. And then, but then Ultron breaks in like he's uh, All Might. He just <laughs> smashes the wall and he's like... Oh, after after Philo's like, who's here? And he smashed through a wall. I am. Uh, Moon Dragon goes to attack, or or Philo goes to attack. Phalanx. Moon Dragon's like, but but that's Ultron having our reaction. Like, why is Ultron here? And then Moon Dragon's heart is ripped out. Yeah, um, and that's a real bummer to me. A lot of <laughs> there's a Man. lot of death in this series, but like. That's the most brutal. That's the most blood we've seen. Yeah, it's real gory, <sighs> and it, and I, a lot of the the murdered characters have been women so far. They have not killed a lot of men, and just nope. like a, a lot of female characters getting done dirty in Marvel in this era, and that's a freaking yeah. bummer. I, I wish it's that was not even like Moon Dragon got phalanxed. Just yeah, dead. She, yeah, she got uh, punched. Yeah, and Bla- like Blastar is implied based on the static to be either infected by the transmode virus or still captured. Like there's not a the the bottom panels of each of the pages that we cut away, it's static instead of, you know, black. So it's you can assume that he has survived, but most of the actual characters that have been shown to die that matter, I say matter that are like focal characters have been women. Granted like we got the death of Flagpole poor flagpole but we also got the death of dimple if you're keeping score which is not my intention here but um we're definitely like uh i spent a lot in the last episode complimenting how much i loved uh phyla and moon dragon's relationship i will continue to like it there will continue to have like angst and without giving away the game um we're not like done with those characters not even in this series but um definitely there's a lot of uh, Phyla and Moondragon are motivated by the terrible things happening to the other one a lot. Yeah. That's, and it, that's not a, a good place to be in. It eventually becomes a pretty unfortunate pattern, although it makes for compa- pretty compelling reading. Um, just, yeah. it's the kind of thing that wouldn't bother me in a vacuum, but it's not in a vacuum. It's in a pretty unfortunate context. And I think in this series specifically, it works because there is a lot of death. There are a lot of main character deaths and like, You've got, especially, uh, especially later, like I have so many times in my notes where I just wrote, no, insert character here. No. <laughs> so it fits. Like, like, And again, it's a war story. It is just, it's not, not great when looking at it from outside the confines of the story. Yeah. As you said. Although we do get, thankfully, it's not like completely just sudden we get that that good good movie moment of you know you say goodbye and then moon dragon 
literally turns to smoke and gets in the high evolutionary eyes, which he deserves. Yeah, and that stuff, that was all hitting me really hard, actually. All the yeah. Phyla talking to a dying yeah. dragon stuff. I have a theory, and this is slightly based on something that happens later in in this series, but I have a theory that, well, I know Moondragon isn't dead. Moondragon's back in the world circa 2021, I don't know how, and I don't know when, and I don't know why. Maybe it's I'm pretty sure she's. Wars. I'm pretty sure she's died at least once or twice between this death and the comics you were referring to. Okay, but I think the way she's going to be brought back here is through the quantum bands, which store souls, which we'll get to. But I wanted to mention it here at the death point. That's super rad, and I'm not going to tell you, confirm or deny that. But we will find out in an episode or two. Yep. So they have some more fighting. Philovel wants to completely take out Ultron. And the High Evolutionary is like, well, my sanctum is compromised. I'm going to blow it up now. And everyone's like, what? And he's like, you got 10 seconds. Bye. (laughs) And Um, then we cut to Ravenous. Okay, so this stuff I like. Ravenous has really, uh, you know, we read his first appearance in the last Annihilation series. But he's Mm -hmm. really um, come around for me of he's just got like a real awful attitude. He's super evil. His look is getting freakier and freakier. And I really enjoyed this confrontation. Yeah, it's a good confrontation. We get a show of force, show of power. Wraith appears and is like, look at all this blue I can manifest. Although I do have to say, I don't like the way they do Wraith's lettering. Uh, I think maybe the idea is to make him more soft-spoken than everyone else, but the lettering is so tiny. It's hard to read. And this is also, like, a problem with a lot of the other... I think it's just the style of the era. Like, you went from these very big balloons that blocked a lot, and the the text and everything is very small to make sure that, you know, the art can shine through, and it's nice. It's well-placed. It's just, it, it can be hard to read sometimes, especially in the wordier balloons. I always can trust you to uh, point out things about lettering that I am not a good com- enough comics critic to have noticed. And I get better every time, so thank you. You're welcome. Um, and the scene ends with, I think, a, a classic move that I like. I love when there's a secret trap door under the stolen throne that the guy sitting <laughs> on the stolen throne doesn't know. And uh, Ronan comes in. He's like, I actually, this was a fake negotiation. I just needed to get near the throne. Thank you. I assume that we're going to be cool. I No yeah. questions. And then he just, like, goes down. <laughs> he's like, I just didn't want to have to beat everyone up. <laughs> it's just Which... easier this way. I think I can hear it in your voice, but have you grown as affectionate for Ronan the Accuser over these issues as I have? Because I love Ronan in this. Yeah, I I really have. Ronan is great. It, I didn't love him as, uh, you know, Phalanx Ronan, but I think that's kind of the point. I like I like the, the conflict within Ronan and him having to deal with all these people in different ways. And he doesn't feel like a one-dimensional character. Um, and I'm... I get sadder and sadder at the movie version um, in the yeah. same way that I got sadder and sadder with, um, oh, the Dark Elf from... Malekith. Thank you. I don't know why I blanked on his name. I've it's typed weird it out name. so many damn times. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah. Ronan, though, he's got he's got such a... He's very honorable and he's very wily. He's, like, really contending in a battle of wits with all these people. He's not, like, a meathead. And so many of these other characters, like Drax, are. And he's just, like, a nice contrast of all these different, like, big, strong dudes. Yeah. Did we... Uh, did we skip into issue three? We are uh, talking about issue three now. That's okay. We'll, uh, we'll keep going. Whoopsies. Little, yeah, it's okay. It's a little late to cut back. Uh, yeah. 
but um, we um, we we jump over to Star Lord and his crew. Um, they're planning to blow up the Babel Spire, and this is where we find out that uh, Blastar, my boy, has been revived as a select. That's no good. That's no um, good. Especially because he fucking vaporizes poor Gabe. Yep, this was the this was the next one where I'm like, Gabe really goes out unceremoniously too. Yeah, just like in it's the middle a of a conversation. Panel. Yeah, he's ripped in half. He's mostly disintegrated, and it's so sad because he just got his robot legs. He had so much to live for. He seems so excited. He had two weeks till retirement. Yeah, um, and that's a rough ending for my pal Gabe. Yeah. I wrote, R.I.P. Dude, you seemed nice. Yeah, R.I.P. And then Blastar takes out Star-Lord, goes out like a chump. Ultron walks in and is like, well, you thought you could win. <laughs> Lol, nope. And he's just holding him up. It's a pretty intense panel. Yeah, and or again. I guess it's a splash page. But, like, yeah, really selling us on Ultron here raises the already impossibly high stakes. Just, like, yeah. Ultron is, um... I, I just watched a show, which will have been out for a little while by the time this episode airs, which is uh, Invincible, the first season. No, I still have not watched it. Um, I'm also a big fan of the Invincible comic by Robert Kirkman mm-hmm. and uh, Ryan Otley for most of the run. And there's <laughs> a, a comic where um, they really sell the different levels of superpowers in this profound way where, like, somebody with superhuman strength and somebody with slightly less superhuman strength, you really see the impossible struggle. And that's what I feel like here is Star-Lord is just like a guy made out of meat and Ultron is like a 12-foot-tall adamantium cape-wearing super robot. And it's just, like, not even... This isn't a fight. This is just Ultron wrecking dudes. Yeah. He comes in and he just... And clearly he could have killed Starlord whenever he wanted, but he wanted information out of him. He wanted something out of him. Which is always always a fun trope, and it's very difficult to make work well sometimes. Because oftentimes people will look through it and be like oh you just didn't want to kill this character and you needed to give an excuse why the super huge the super you know powerful villain wouldn't take him out in one blow and ultimately no it's it's, it's good star lord characterization because he keeps yeah. on lying and making it sound like he has intel so he can get tortured for longer and hold yeah. out for a little bit longer and that's clever like um his his lies are pretty convincing and you see ultron doubt it but he's like that's a pretty big risk and torturing him is a smaller risk and Plus he enjoys torturing star lord yeah and he loves torturing star lord because ultron's a weird robot he's got a lot of feelings about that but yep. then we find out which i love that mantis is elsewhere in the facility and she's using her psychic powers to help star lord resist and block his pain and that's really cool and clever it is um, and I like that we see Mantis and Bug bonding a little bit. I know that this is a uh, Bug was not a character you're familiar with, but like I, I got affection for the dude. He's um, he and Mantis like really uh, form a real friendship over this next couple issues. Yeah, and the and this is a very good exchange too. I especially like how the Abner and Lanning write the the little ticks in, and <laughs> one of them, you know ticks over a swear so you still have the cadence and the rhythm but you don't have to deal with like at sign dollar sign dollar sign pound sign and all of that yeah it can be distracted it's distracting if it's used incorrectly like i much prefer i'm sorry i'm gonna bash donny cates here but anytime he writes a swear it never feels real 
yeah, the punctuation swearing almost never works. Uh, different people find different. Um, I really like it in um, this uh, slightly after this era of Thor comics. They will use the Nordic runes instead of swearing. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I think that's pretty fun. Like uh, different uh, creative teams think of different clever stuff, but Bugs ticking is a, a fun tick. Yeah, it is. And then we cut back over to your the main man, Blastar himself. Yes, kind of talking over, bru- uh, not brooding, uh kind of beating his chest at one of the uh <laughs> of the space knights i Which think is specifically re- the space knight that was on the planet when star lord when the invasion first started yeah you're correct and that's also um a great reminder that the space knights are involved in this because they're going to be like a somewhat of a presence yeah they have fallout of this to deal with <laughs> and so it's kind of weird kind of checking in with the tense search for the, you know the rest of what become the guardians although here they're just uh what's his face they're just star lord's little ragtag crew and his amazing friends his amazing friends his uh marvelous mates i like that star lord and his marvelous mates they're trying to uh, figure out what to do rocket's kind of freaking out a little bit he's very insecure which is so weird to see compared to to current rocket characterization yeah, I mean, Rocket in the movies is insecure, but he's so... Uh, but in a proje- different way. Yeah, he projects, and he's so brash. Yeah. And this Rocket is very, like, um... I don't know, like, um... Like, nebbishy, almost. <laughs> I got... You took the word right out of my mouth. <laughs> and they also... They really stress Rocket as, like, a, a nerd, where he's, like, a tactical and weapons genius, and he's, like, the man with the plan. Yeah. And he talked, so he talks to Groot and he's like, think we can figure out plan B? He's like, well, I am Groot. <laughs> Great. Yeah, which, which is, yeah. Um, love a well-written setup to an I am Groot. The best is when you can see it coming a mile away and you're just like, is he going to say the thing? Is he going to say the thing? And then he does the I am Groot and then you just start cheering and high-fiving <laughs> a million angels. Yep. So once we get through that, we cut back. We go to... Uh, some more high evolutionary Adam Warlock banter. It's all yeah, right. I, yeah, I they, just, I don't like the high evolutionary. I mean, he serves his purpose here, but I, I could do without Philovel is sad, you know, as you do. I did beat. like, I like, um, her and Adam Warlock talking through her feelings because, yeah. um, he is, seems like a really sweet guy who's like not emotionally equipped to, to be in this situation. So he's like trying his best and kind of muddling through it. And that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting way to get to know him a little yeah. bit. And this is where we get a little bit more of the, the understanding of, of, uh, the quantum bands, how they store what is essentially soul energy. And that, so like you said, coming from more of the spiritual side than the science side, of these bands. Uh, and yeah. this is where I, this is where I kind of started putting it. I'm like, maybe moon dragon got stored in these bands and she's going to come back at the end of the series. Spoilers. She doesn't come back at the end of this series. Uh, well, but... uh, Adam Warlock talks about the soul gem, which she used to be the yes. builder of one of the, uh, the famous infinity stones. And, um, and Adam Warlock and Gamora in their old comics had a real habit of seeming to die, but then no, they were just trapped in the soul gem all the time. <laughs> so you're, if if they're making that connection, your guess is pretty well informed. Yeah, I mean that that literally happens in 2018 for Gamora. So 
she loves to do it. It still loves, hasn't gone away. Loves there's, to get trapped in the soul gym. Yeah. There's this one line that I really enjoyed from, from Adam Warlock. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. It seems tactlessness is one of my new powers. Yeah. It's a Which great is such a, line. Adam Warlock, I guess, uh, from this characterization moving forward, is a real goody two-shoes. He's, like, trying to be Captain America, but he's too bratty. He, he's not really feeling it. He's, so he's, like, not living up to his own ideals. Yeah, and but he doesn't also have not the uh, the sanctimoniousness, but he's not even trying to put on those kind of airs as like I know better or even I know what's right. He's just like, man, I just want to help people. Yeah, he's a real himbo. The word we're looking for is himbo. Yeah, yeah, especially himbo with uh, with faulty powers. He's got like a short circuit somewhere. Yeah, because he got—he wasn't finished cooking when they woke him up. Yeah, so when they're right over the planet, he has one of his. Uh, I guess it's—it's it's kind of like an epileptic fit. Yeah, I think they even make that comparison at one point to it. But he, uh, his powers like fizzle out. Yeah, and they go crashing. And High Evolutionary is like, Warlock wouldn't let me fall, and then Warlock lets him fall. <laughs> Which is satisfying. Could use a little bit Very more of that. Very satisfying. Very um, checking back in with the Ronin crew, we find out that what's under the throne is an army of uh, Kree sentries, which we know are, like, really powerful, and these are, like, super unhackable Kree sentries that Ronin is, like, pretty convinced uh, are going to be able to fight the Phalanx. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess what I like about this scene is it l- ends on a pretty um, questionable note because nobody really ever is like, really? You want to send robots against the guy whose main thing is, like, hacking robots? And uh, Ronan's like, no, 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 I believe that these robots will be different. And they kind of, like, leave you questioning that. <laughs> yeah. He's like, their systems are clean, plus I'll have Praxagora have a- established just a rapport with the tech, which seems very nebulous. And, like, Abner and Lanning kind of didn't understand how Praxagora worked. Yeah, and then, Cause, like, Because Praxagora... her whole thing is storing energy. Yeah, and then Praxagora and Wraith are, like, using their... Just none of these powers work, but he's like, okay, all our MacGuffin people are channeling into these centuries to make them viable. It's like I went up to my DM and was like, I'm going to do all this, and the DM was like, no, and I'm like, nat 20s. They're like, fine, I'll do it. But it's like nat 20s on all these skill checks that aren't in, like, a dire situation. You're just like, that's a stupid plan. And you're like, well, let me roll for it. And they're like, fine. You're, you're maneuvering your way through it, trying to get around it. But so they, they basically give uh, these phalanx proof sentries uh, a coating of of goo, of wraith goo to protect them. And then Ravenous is like, OK, cool. How are you going to you might liberate your empire? And, and Ronan's like, no, no. I'm going to kill them all. Oops, <laughs> all genocide. Oh, my God. That's such a Ronin move, too. Like, it's really just believable where he's just like, I uh, know I can't win, but I do know that I could just, like, self-destruct our entire galaxy, and that's preferable. And everyone's like, is it, though? And Ronin's like, yes, I have thought about this very hard. And everyone's like, I have, have thought you, about though? this for centuries. Yeah. All of the, and he, But he's also like, they would agree with me. And everyone else is like, I don't know, dude, but okay. Yeah, and I like that you've been meeting all these minor Kree throughout this, and you're like, I'm pretty sure Raven and Corel would not agree with you, but, like, don't ask Raven. She's just standing over there looking skeptically at you. Yeah. But then we, um, we cut back to more torture, but Ultron finally detects Mantis 
uh, protecting Star Lord. So and oh, and then our good old Space Knight friend finds them. So we get good some setup, more torture. But we're, but we're jumping around too much because now we're going over to Adam Warlock Rescue and Philavel. Yeah, this this is kind of where where you're right. There, there's a lot more. I forgot that these scenes were so short. I guess yeah, it, it helps keep the pace. It's like things are ramping up so that it, it's important that we're not dwelling too much on each scene because it's tense and you want to get through the different aspects and you you don't want to spend too much time, especially you don't want to spend that much time with the high evolutionary. That's true. But if I, if I went through this, I would find pages and pages of these high evolutionary conversations. And then like, there's a lot of cutting back to Star-Lord getting tortured by Ultron, but not a lot of progress is made. It's just like Ultron's like, well, we tried that torture and now we're going to try this torture. Oh, you're yeah. resisting that torture. And now we're gonna have to spice that up. And, um, it's fine to read. Like it makes for a compelling read. But, um, when I look back on it, I'm like, not a lot happened here. Um, and yeah. not a lot happens in this last conversation until they uh, Adam Warlock and Phyla Vell reunite with the High Evolutionary, only to find, surprise, surprise, that dude was working both sides against the middle, and the Phalanx made him a better offer. Yep. Although, we, we know that he probably wasn't doing it the whole time. He was just given a new deal, and he was like, sure, whatever, I don't care. I have literally no, no dogs, n- nothing here. Yeah, no loyalty. From- yeah. Um, I mean, which perfectly tracks for this this asshole. Totally, and I'm interested in um in following that. But before we do, do you want to hop on over and talk uh, Nova a little bit? Check back in with our pal Richard Ryder. I think what we um I was gonna say should we finish at issue five and then check in with Nova because we we should have jumped over earlier. Um, sh- it's up to you. I say we do Nova, and then we do five and six. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so right off the bat, we're talking Nova number eight. Um, What I love is that Nova number eight opens with a flashback to Annihilation. And what's cool about this is uh, everyone's back in their old costume. Star-Lord has that terrible robot eye that he's finally gotten rid of. Um, God, finally. But I love that because it's a flashback, they're like, aren't you happy we got rid of this thing? And I am. I am happy they got rid of it. It looks terrible. Nova's got that terrible scar in his face that they don't show so much anymore. Just like all of these looks were bad, and they're just like, let's remember how bad these looks were. Um, I didn't even and notice I also, the scar, honestly. Yeah, they played that up in the Annihilation issues, too, and for this one page. And I also like that this um, is their dynamic from the previous war, where Star-Lord is always explaining how space works to Nova, and Nova's just too stupid to follow. And he's like, if you say so, Star-Lord, and Star-Lord's like, ah, kid, you'll never know how to fly through the Stargates like the Star-Lord. Love that dynamic. (laughs) And then, boom, he's flying through the gates like the Star-Lord. Yeah, and there's a great, um, I remember when I first read this issue, when the title card hits and it says nowhere, but nowhere is spelled with a K, um, and this is your first time seeing that word, you're just like, huh? What What does that mean? Very yeah. intriguing nonsense word for some reason. Don't know why it does it for me. It, it's because it's always, it's a fun, uh, fun word game type thing. Yeah. There's a word for that. <laughs> There's a word for this. It's not like homophone. It's, it's not a homonym. It sounds good, whatever it is. Whatever uh, it is. So Nova is finding himself on the edge of the universe. So in Annihilation, we spent a lot of time on the inner edge of the universe, which is the crunch. And now we're on like the outer edge of the universe where things get really freaky. Yeah. Um, he's been He's been thrown onto 
basically the edge of known space. Well, no, well, no, no, not the edge of known space because this is literally the edge of all space. It is where everything's um, expanding out into. It is the, but, uh, from the Big Bang until now, it is the maximum distance that light would have been able to travel and thus yeah. the maximum distance of observable reality. And in the Marvel Universe, that means that there are these super squalls out here and, you know, and like time freaky, space it doesn't work and whatnot. Freaky space and I think in our universe, we just literally can never know what is beyond this point. Like, it is physically impossible for us to know unless we can break, like, the speed of light. It's physically impossible to see because light can't have gotten there yet, but um, also maybe that. there's other ways of knowing. Anyway. Nova finds himself... Uh, oh, you're making X-Files noises. I, get it, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, what the hell was that? Um, Nova finds himself in this like weird, freaky room, and we're going to find out what it is in a second, but it's super cursed and haunted. Him and Worldmind are like right back up to their old tricks, where um, after seeing Nova be evil for a couple issues, it's just like nice that their dynamic is restored. Yeah, and he finds like this freaky, crying, purple swimsuit-wearing alien. Um, there's a bit of a mystique to it, but we find out that these are the Luminals of Zarth Three, and I was like, that definitely sounds like something from like a throwback Marvel thing. It's not. These are their first appearance. First and only. Not only the Luminals not will, only. Con- will continue to be a uh, presence in the Guardians comics moving forward. Seriously? Seriously? Oh God. You're not a big are fan they just, of the Luminals? Are they just like the, the super narcs? Yeah, they pretty much suck. They're pretty much antagonistic. They're the okay. Avengers of this planet called Zarth. There's like 50 of them, and they Zarth is like the closest planet to this area of space. So they uh, yeah. hang out on, on this nowhere a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Does Nova lean into the, the horror a lot more than like some of these other books? Because they really, it really is here. Like, it definitely does doesn't. This is like a haunted house story. Yeah, I love a good haunted house story. I've been playing a lot of Resident Evil lately. I'm playing uh, the the remakes of two and three, and uh, Resident Evil in space with Richard Rider sounds really dope. Actually, was this contingent with Black Lantern or Darkest Blackest Night? Uh, roughly speaking, this was 2007, and uh, Blackest Night was around that time. Let's see to the internet. Uh, 2009. Yeah, so just after this. Okay. It it um, had it it had like Blackest Night vibes, maybe because they have like Green Lantern esque clothes. Um with the the logo in the center. But anyway, Richard Richard uh is talking with, you know, the alien who's talk basically is playing cosmic hide and seek but all jumbled. It's not ready, not ready, ready or not. Here I come. It's scary and, and and cool. Yeah. They fight. She He attacks. She blows up. And then the rest of the Luminals are like, you killed our friend. And he They definitely seem like they've caught a bad case of the space madness. Like, they do not seem like they're playing with a full deck. No. And he, he just kind of, Ryder just kind of runs away. And he runs into my favorite character, Cosmo. I assume so. Yeah, Cosmo, the Russian space dog. I love uh, Cosmo. This is Cosmo's first appearance, and I was looking into it. Um, Cosmo has never been deeply explained, actually. He's in a lot of issues, and he's really great, and he's gonna. we're going to continue to hang with Cosmo. Um, but, like, yeah, it just everyone always accepts that Cosmo is a talking, psychic dog in a Russian cosmonaut uniform. Yeah. I mean, 
why not? He feels uh, like something that fell out of uh, the Manhattan Projects. Totally. Which There's the moment when uh, Richard introduces himself to Cosmo and then uh, shakes his paw, and I'm like, sold. I, I'll read every everything you put this guy in, I will read. Yep. Cosmo's the best. You can't tell us otherwise. And I love how he is just he's a bit of an exposition hound, but it works. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. It works. Especially when he goes, uh, he goes, okay, where you are? You are on nowhere. I've got to be somewhere. Niet, niet, nowhere with K. <laughs> and like, how uh, do you know how to sp- spell that, Cosmo? How do you understand the, the etymology of this? You don't speak with your mouth. You speak with your brain. Don't question it. But but he does kind of speak with his mouth because when he had the, the it, rider's arm in his mouth, the thoughts did not communicate. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why. This continues to be a running joke with Cosmo. I think he's doing it on purpose because he's a freaking genius. Oh, probably. It's Comedy just more fun genius. that way. Um, it we it also, probably also makes people feel better. Like thinking, oh yes, it's coming out of his mouth. I just hear it in my head. Yeah, and Cosmo's like a nice, good boy. He's all about trying to make people feel better. He, In fact, he continuously insists that most of his motivation is because he is man's best friend. Yep. And thus has to be helpful. Yep. So um, what is also, Nowhere? Yeah, so we get to see Nowhere from the outside, and it's pretty exciting, huh? Yeah, it's just a big celestial skull at the edge of the universe. And yeah. it looks like it. It's very spooky. It's spooky, it's mysterious, and later we're going to... Uh, later Nowhere is going to be a big part of the Guardians of the Galaxy comics. It's going to be a big part of the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. It's going to end up being a big part of the Thor mythos and the, the uh, Venom mythos. Like, uh, Nowhere ends up being a pretty cool Marvel mainstay. And yeah, this is the first appearance. Oh. That's pretty cool. That They do a really good job of introducing it then. I didn't know this was the first one. Totally, oh. yeah, because uh, I love when you come in, it's haunted as heck. Yep. And uh, everything about it's real spooky. But by the end of it, when it's kind of been restored to normalcy, you get the feeling that, like, uh, this sort of thing happens on Nowhere every so often. And that's just, like, the price you pay for living in a spooky severed head on the edge of the universe. Yep, pretty much. And but, then... like, on a normal day, like, people go shopping there and stuff. <laughs> yep. So we find out that this place is actually literally being haunted by something. And that the, uh, whatever they're called. The Luminals of Zarth. The Luminals of Zarth, they came in with some weird box, and it's been causing problems for everyone. And so they're all in. Where are they hiding? What's they're it in called? a pocket dimension inside of Cosmo's collar. Yes, they're in a pocket dimension inside of Cosmo's collar. We don't know the Cosmo's collar part just yet, but we know that. And so we cut back to the Luminals talking about how this big thing is safe and it's the abyss in a box and it's like fused to the center of this cavern and uh, the guy who kind of looks like Nightcrawler is like, you're counting down, what are you counting down from? Five, four, three you never ask why the thing is counting down. You never do that. It never ends well. And yeah, so away. The, the coffin breaks a little bit and they turn into zombies. Zombie zombies. Yeah, like real ghoul guys. Yeah. And so we get some some backstory as to what was happening on before Richard showed up. Uh, and It's mostly nice for um it's just like a Richard Ryder Cosmo team up and yeah. I like both those characters and um 
and you know they're just like they gotta seal the tomb and there's guy they gotta fight the zombies and everything like uh the details or whatever it just to like hang out with these two characters and go on an adventure is great yeah although there was one point cosmos like comprehend nova we have company bad company i was like worse company <laughs> yeah cosmos got he's a comedy genius comedy genius um it's pretty cool that the way um nova seals the ancient sarcophagus of the space abyss is by downloading his transmode virus into it yeah and then the trade-off is that he is now less resistant to it which i think that's a good way of keeping things tense connected to this external uh you know plot without forcing him to be only in you know very focused plot stuff like we could have this detour and it still affects what's going on but in a kind of indirect way i'll take it even a step farther i think this is exactly what i love about ongoing comics like we know that this big event is happening and we know that he still got this disease but just like he had to go on this two issue little sojourn and make a new friend and fight a new villain um but all of the ticking clock stuff from the main conflict is ticking even closer like uh for pacing reasons it's fun and then also there's all these fun new stories seated that you know we're gonna pick up on especially with cosmo the best boy yeah cosmo rules um so it pretty much ends with um uh richard takes a nap and nowhere gets restored and uh, we get to see it when it's lively and it looks really cool it looks a lot like it does in the movie there's a lot of people like mining the brain fluids and stuff and there's like a lot of like marketplace bazaars um, i'd read a babylon 5 book or a. uh a... Sorry, I, I, I watch a Nowhere TV show that's just Babylon 5. Or Deep Space Nine, which I'm more familiar with, but I, I will watch Babylon 5 for you one day, my friend. And then I will, I'll talk about, again, the, the conflict between the two shows because they have history. Ooh, yeah, that, I'm in. That sounds great. Um, but uh, we find that one of the capabilities of Nowhere, which is going to be critical, is they have the Continuum Cortex. It's like a part of the dead celestial's brain that will teleport you anywhere in space. And, and it knows it, about all of these lost places as well. Yeah, and that's so weird and cool. Uh, that's the my favorite Marvel sci-fi stuff. Because you're in a machine in the brain of a dead robot space god from before time, it knows about the lost planets and will take you there. What does that even mean? Yeah. So they find out where the home of the Technarchs, Technoarchs, they call it uh, the Technarchy. Yeah, the Technarchs. Which is a name. Uh, Technarchs is uh, from classic Claremont X-Men stuff in the 80s. Yeah, it's their home world, which is the, and so we think, oh, clearly that's the place where all of the, the big stuff is going on. Now, if we hadn't done three and four, I think, I, you know, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, we're going to find so much going on on the, on the head planet. But as, as we talked about three and four, not a lot of uh, kvitch has shown up already. I was wondering if you would pronounce it kvitch or kvich. <laughs> I, I think kvitch is more more accurate. I don't it think they would have more... put, put the kh in. I don't know. There's a member of the Star Jammers whose name is either Khad or Chode. And I really hope it's the first one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But then again, I mean, you've got Kvetch. Try, stop trying to make Kvetch happen, Elias. <laughs> well, I don't need to make Kvetch happen because Fetch already happens with good old Cosmo and the Bone Toy. 
Yeah, I just think every toy. <laughs> which he bought a Nova bought at the gift <laughs> shop on his way out and put like wrapped for him in little doggy paper, which it's I the love best. that. So you have to assume that Cosmo is the only dog that these people have ever seen, and they're so obsessed with him that they like sell all this dog themed stuff because everyone on Nowhere loves Cosmo, and that's why they let him like hide themselves in his collar and stuff. They're just like, this is the nicest creature in the universe. We need to theme entire gift shops after him. He's the best. And he's the first person to note... Well, I mean, there's an intruder alert. Two hours after uh, Nova goes gets thrown off to the... To Kvitch, to the, the Technarch homeworld, Gamera and Drax break onto Nowhere, nowhere and uh, go poof, disappear. Yeah, they hijack the continuum cortex. But again, just like a great uh, ongoing comic pacing where we just had this side adventure, but now we're checking in with the ongoing uh, conflict. And one yep. of the ticking clocks is the advance, his uh, his virus advancing, and the other one is that uh, the two of the deadliest fighters in the galaxy are relentlessly pursuing him. And then we get issue 10, which has a title that has not aged well. I wrote that too. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Um... This issue is called Vor, and it is about a creature called a Vor. And I imagine that uh, it obviously shares an etymology with the uh, uh, fetish theme of the modern internet. And it probably uh, was around then. And I guess I have to question whether or not Abnett and Lanning were into that scene. I have no way of knowing. None Nor do at I all. care to find out. Yep, I'm not going to dwell on it uh, because on that page we also have Gamera and Richard cuddling up together. And they wake up, and Gamera freaks out, and so does Richard, uh, and they fight, as you do. For pretty much the entire issue, they're just inside of this creature getting digested. Um, it's all, like, pretty gross outer spacey stuff, um, but it's a, it, it continues on their arc of Gamora and Richard's um, shared tragic history. Romance. Yeah, and their tragic romance. Um yeah. It's a good track. I love I love a good tragic romance. Who doesn't? Uh, Richard has some angst over Corel and Gamera's like, who cares? I got to kill someone. You would have we killed also- her too in that virus mode. And that's also what's killing Richard because he's like, I, I didn't care. Yeah, and we so we we also find out that, that um Gamora's guilt on on of being a killer and um and, and being exposed to Richard's moral code so much has really, like, uh, shaken her and questioned her. And a big part of her motivation for wanting to serve the phalanx is that they can suppress those, like, self, that self-doubt in her brain. Um, and yeah. uh, just they, they're making the bad feelings go away, and she's been, like, accumulating a lot of them. Gamora has a tough, uh, tough gig. Yeah. And all throughout, they're fighting these space jellyfish, which we eventually find out are babies. And they have been taken into the womb basically to be food yeah um xenobiology is cool um it was pretty gross yep and they escape by being literally birthed into (laughs) into the universe yeah um (laughs) again the the, um the writing and the art sells this as a little adventure um i really especially like the very last page where um Richard's uh, suit and his armor and his face and his skin and his eyes are all covered with the uh, techno-organic virus just advancing. And he's yeah. like, almost there. And you really feel like, um, 
I love this good moment in a story where, like, you've been questing and there's no coming back from Mount Doom at this point. Like, you're there, and if this doesn't save the world, then this is your last shot yeah. at it. He, it says he's two hours until death or being, you know, having to give in. Like, those are the options at this point, and there's not a lot of time. Uh, and while he's contending with that, Gamera tried to stab him in the back. He knocks her out, throws her onto Drax, and Drax is just like, Ryder! I like that um, ri- that Richard knows that Gamora is dangerous enough that he gives her the respect of striking first. Yeah, but he still and, and, cares, and he's like, he's trying. Yeah, but but she's impressed, and um, it sells her respect for him, too, that she's just like, I know you don't kill people, and I like that about you, but I also know that you're like, you will throw the first punch to win a fight and get away because you're a formidable warrior, and I like fighting with you. And I I think that's a cool part of their relationship. And then we get annual number one, which is a lot of backstory for Richard, for people like me who didn't really know much about him. Um, how much of this is a retcon? Um, very little of it, actually. Uh, this is pretty uh, authentic to his origins in the 80s. Um, this issue has a lot of creative uh, credits, but um, so it's written by Abnett and Lanning still, but it is drawn by Mahmoud Asrar, here credited as Mahmoud A. Asrar. Uh, Klebs Jr. and Wellington Elves with inks by Juan Velasco and Nelson Pereira. Um, colored by Guru FX and lettered by Corey Petit. The, the, I mentioned uh, some of my favorite artists are going to show up here. Love Mahmoud Asrar. I love his X-Men work. I love uh, all of his Marvel work. And I think this is some of his early stuff. Oh. I didn't know it was some of his early stuff, but he's do he is great. Uh, and he's been like recently he's been killing it on Conan and X-Men. Oh yeah. His Conan stuff is fantastic with Jason Aaron. Excellent stuff. Asar um, is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So this, I love this annual issue. It starts off being a recap of the Nova origin. Yeah. And, and, and you can, you can see kind of the flavors of Spider-Man in it. Yeah, and you can also feel um, it's got it's much cornier than the rest of the comics been oh, in yeah. art art style and dialogue. Um, it's an '80s thro- like this is supposed to be a throwback to '80s style writing. And uh, if you ever go back and read '80s comics, this has kind of the uh, earnestness that you would expect there. Yeah, although it looks and feels like it's been transposed into the 2000s, which it has, which it has, especially with uh, his goth friend. She's very goth. <laughs> Yeah, that's, very 2000s that's her, goth. That's her characterization. Inauthentically 2000s goth. Yeah. I'd, oh, my God. The parents suck so much. Yeah, oh, they're it's so horrible to this girl. I mean, it's they're horrible in general, but oh, my they, God. They stay horrible throughout the series, and it's really interesting because they're never um, – they're always terrible, but always, like, low-key, right? They yeah. never – they always do things that would have been socially acceptable if other parents saw them doing this. Everyone would have made excuses for this couple. And I like how aware of the book, how aware of that the book is. Yeah. Especially when like in the background we get like, he's just, the the mom is just, oh, saying horrible things to, to this, to, to his friend. It's like calling yeah. him a skank and a tramp. I'm like, you are a grown woman talking to a teenager. That is a good point. Um, like, of wow. Course, very little of that ends up mattering because of the twist. Yeah, so it turns out that good old Rich has been 
you know, it's 50 years later, and he has woken up, and the transmode virus has basically been, it's in remission, but it's not completely gone. It's kind of like Lyme disease. You never really get rid of it. And Yeah. And sometimes it causes him to have flashbacks to his origin yeah. while he's in a, a hospital bed. kind of devouring his memory. Or not devouring it, but, like, he doesn't remember anything except his, you know, very important backstory. And what's currently going on, he has to he gets filled in. But he mostly doesn't remember anything in between. Which uh, is like, helpful because we don't remember, so he's got a lot of important exposition questions. Yeah, were and you, a lot of the people How surprised don't... were you when we had yeah. a 50-year time jump in the middle of the story? I was very surprised, but as soon as I saw that, I'm like, okay, I know the shape of this. I know the yeah, shape of what's yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. This but is pretty was, common it, in these sorts of comics. Yeah, but it was a lot of fun, and um, what, what was it? Uh, but this way, actually, Abner and Lanning don't have to do any of the heavy lifting. Like, they don't really have to come up with explanations for why X, Y, or Z is happening. They can just kind of sort of allude to it, because it doesn't yeah. matter. Well, and but the details of it are fascinating. So, uh, Gamora and Philavel are both members of the restored Nova Corps, and it seems like in this future, the Nova Corps is like the last team of good guys fighting against the whole galaxy. Yeah. Um, Wendell Vaughn, the original Kazar, is also back as like an energy ghost, and you're just like, is that foreshadowing? Is this something that's going to happen? Is it what, what's up with that? And he's like, I, I don't have time to explain. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. I've told you this seven times before. And we find out what they're doing, and they're going back to the last stronghold of the phalanx, which is Earth. And my first thought was, is this the ninth life of Moira? Yeah, man. So the Moira stuff definitely is somewhat connected to this. And if you go back and read those Hoxbox issues, there's some very oblique mentions of this feature. Which is... That's crazy. Great stuff being done by uh, Abnett, Lenning, and Hickman, and all the rest. Just like, uh... I love that kind of stuff, because by the end of this issue, it's made pretty clear that this isn't real, but it could be. Like, there's that that possibility, or, like, maybe she was being fed, because this is the Marvel Universe, so there are infinite universes, so this could be a universe somewhere. We don't know. Yeah. Um... But yeah, so we, we get uh, Richard continues to flash between his origin and this dark future, um, and we get an amazing splash page that I love, a double-page spread of um, the phalanxed versions of everyone on Earth. Yeah, it is. It's the Avengers and the Dark Avengers, and they're all showing up. Magneto's there. I think Hercules is on the page. Maybe that's um, Ares. I see Hercules and Ares. Justice is there. Uh, Carol Danvers in her Ms. Marvel costume, and you're like, oh, if you really knew the future, you would know oh, that hey, she would Black not be wearing that. There. Yeah, Black Bolt with, like, no air mask, because Black Bolt's just like, yeah, I love to hang out in space. I wouldn't tell you that, though, because that would kill you. <laughs> but in space, no one can hear you scream. Oh, someone should have told... I, maybe he would be the exception to that. Ah, uh, that's true. He's, he's special like that. But um, we... We, what's important, and I don't, again, I don't know if this is true to the original story, but the first person that Nova fights is a phalanx. That I, do, the that modern I do believe look. is a retcon. Okay. Okay, um, cool. I would that have to go back. Yeah. To see what the, I know he fights an alien in his first appearance, but I do not think it's a phalanx. Okay. But yeah, he fights a phalanx here. 
uh, or a set of phalanxes with uh, Roman Day. Yeah, a character who's appeared in the MCU, actually. Really? Uh, Yeah, you don't remember who played Roman Day? Oh, that... uh... Wait, wait, wait. Is Roman Day... um... Not Michael C. Clark. John C. Riley. Thank you. Oh yeah, my John God. C. Riley is playing Roman Day. If they ever make a Nova movie, they're going to have to call him back to play this role. Wow. Which does is fun. Get, does he get unceremoniously killed in like Nova's first, first real mission? Roman Day is um, like Abin Sur from Green Lantern. He like okay. dies giving Richard the power. Okay. Sounds about right. Um, cool. no, everything about Nova is kind of derivative, which is one of the reasons why I love this run, because it gives him so much of his own unique flavor. Yeah. Um, but then in the closing moments of this issue is my, the, the twist that really brings this all together to me, because I like the conceit of, uh, recapping the origin for those who might not know while also making it part of this potential future. Like, that's all cool. But then the thing that makes the, uh, the through line so emotional is that, uh, Nova is having this pep talk with, um, this young... Uh, Nova Centurion, and um, while he's suiting up and and uh, getting all these compliments, and then he asks the Nova Centurion his name, and it's Zam. It's the son of Corel, who she never got to see and say goodbye to earlier in the story. And man, that really hit me. Yeah, same. And I I really like how even within the, this conceit, they're tying the flashbacks to the present by having him repeat the the stuff that that roman day said to him to zam and he's passing it along and it's kind of a te- that in and of itself is a pep talk to himself as well and then he wakes up in the middle of kind of being infected by the transworld virus made manifest on the planet fitch and the only reason he was able to break out was because of both remembering his first adventure with Roman Day and, like, what Roman Day said to him about, you know, his powers and and how... He, the reason why he's picked is because he is average. And he's like, this... Because you, you don't bring all of these things to... to All the, the baggage and the, the self-importance. But then also the memory of, of, like, trying to do right by Zam for, like, fighting for the next generation. Like, if he fails here, that won't happen. And I love all that. So he, totally. he fights. He fights kind of a, a manifestation of himself that doesn't look like himself. Uh, and the issue ends in space, approximately nine hundred and sixty million light years from Earth. Yeah, great, great stuff. Great um, stuff. Finally, uh, we come to the last arc of Nova before we come to the last arc of Conquest. Oh boy, um, we're getting so there, this- folks. Yeah, a lot of issues today. So this arc is uh, written by Abnett and Lanning, but it is illustrated by Paul uh, Pelletier, uh, mm-hmm. inked by uh, Rich Magyar, colored by Guru FX, and lettered by VC's Corey Petit. So I really like Paul Pelletier's art. Um, it's pretty Marvel House style, but I think he does it better than a lot of the other guys around him in this series. And uh, Paul Pelletier is going to be the first artist and the main artist on the Guardians of the Galaxy ongoing that's going to spin out of this. So he's going to have a lot of influence over the designs of Rocket and Groot. And um, I think it's kind of uh, weird and unfortunate that he, um, I don't know, doesn't get more recognition because he did a lot of iconic design work that uh, built this whole franchise. I think I think part of why that might be is because the era just looks kind of, it's got that, like, for a long time, I never wanted to read the Guardians of the Galaxy 
comics of this era. Yeah. And I'll save my thoughts for that for when we read it next time. Uh, but that I'll, I'll get into, yeah, I'll get into it then. Sure. But. Well, I think the, the, these issues, at least, I think uh, Pelletier um, paces really well. Yeah. Like the page turn reveals are good. The alien landscapes are good. Um, and pretty quickly after getting into an altercation with like a big robot being, uh, Richard is saved by a, a character who I'm going to go out and say is the hardest to draw Marvel character. He totally is. And I, uh, this is my exact thought. So we've got these, these robots, they're attacking each other. I'm like, they're, they're uh, husks, is what I called them, at least. They're not. They're, they're alive or whatever. They're representational. Uh, and I love just the way that, like, everything kind of, uh, it's like water. Everything moves like water. Yeah, like, it's like, like flowing nanites, but they yeah. look sharp. And then out of one of these creatures, I just wrote, Hold the shit up. Is that Warlock like X-Men Warlock? And it is. Great entrance for my boy Warlock. Um, great writing of the Warlock voice, but also like really hard to draw character. And he doesn't look like he does uh, when he first appeared where he was very abstract and kind of floating like a cartoon character. Here he's much more has like a physical shape, but he looks great. Yeah, and he still moves and changes and has those... Um the abstractions baked into and it seems like this is a conscious choice for both the artist and the character in order to kind of be next to uh what's the guy trio his Uh, tyro pyro tyro yeah his um his uh yeah, his child slash ward, who he's trying to raise. So it what what the, what the issue does through a bunch of good exposition is it ties in a lot of really interesting X Men mythology. It ties in the Technarch stuff with the Phalanx stuff, which I don't think had ever been made explicit before this story. Um, but the Technarchs built the Phalanx and uh, let them loose on the universe. And then um, we learn a little bit about the the Technarchs, if you don't know, that they start off small and looking like cute little warlock and like Tyro, but eventually they grow up to be uh, Sirdoms, who are these like big, freaky, black and gold whale creatures with big teeth who are just uh, feral and they consume and they try to extinguish all the life in the galaxy and assimilate organic life into machine life. Yep, they are pretty nasty. Yeah, and um, Warlock, if you're unaware from his X-Men appearances, is a mutant. And his mutant is that he can feel emotions and compassion beyond being one of these feral creatures. And he is trying to instill that mutation upon the rest of the Technarchy. And I think that's all great world building. And again, just like tying together Ultron and the Phalanx and the Technarchy, that's great Marvel writing of taking a bunch of threads that were out there and making them... um, flow together in a way that doesn't lessen any of them and makes the universe feel a little bit more coherent and sane. I think that's awesome. It is. Yeah. And I didn't know any of that was retcon, but it it all worked for me. As like, oh, I'm following this. That makes sense. Okay. Now I see why the the Technarchy homeworld is so important uh, or why it was important we get here. Why it's also kind of important that it's a dead world and that doesn't really have anything to do with the phalanx as it currently is. And but you still you still learn all the important lore yeah. and, and then we get 
in the middle of kind of all of these explanations, Gamera and Drax crash land on the planet. And in a really horrifying sequence that I could do without, they turn into one of those towers. Uh, and I hate it. I hate it so much. That was disgusting. No. Yeah, the Babel Spire. Very scary. Very nasty. HR um, Geiger. HR Geiger, yeah. I've heard it's pronounced. Uh, style to it. Yeah, nasty. Nasty, horrible, nasty. Uh, but the, the Spire summons one of these uh, Sirdems and kind of freaks out uh, Tiro, Tyro, Tiro. Yeah, who's very young. He seems like a hothead, maybe a bit of a bully, um, yeah. but with a heart of gold. But the Sirodem comes crashing down and starts literally just ripping apart the planet to, to beat up and destroy the child, which is messed up. That's how they roll. That's in Warlock's first appearance. They fight his dad, and that's that's the story. Oh, that was his first appearance? Yeah. Oh, wow. But at this point, good old uh, Richard is being being taken over again by the virus. Oh, one, one detail I guess we kind of forgot to mention was Warlock used some of his power to purge part of, or put it back into remission, the, the, the Technarch. God. Yeah. Trans, yeah, the Technarchs. Trans, the Transworld, trans, trans mode, trans mode virus. Found it. Put it into remission, but he says that he can't you like you can't use all of his basically his energy his life energy to get life to completely glow. get rid of it yeah they call it their life glow yeah and it basically it would to, to cure one person would take one person so warlock could um d- extinguish himself to save richard um but, but that would be it for him yeah and he's like i have a bigger mission i have to save my my people and if i cannot sacrifice all of me for you for this and it's, it, I really like that conversation that the two of them have because it's not just hot-headed anger, you know, as you usually do. It's they have the they have like an actual meaningful conversation about it. And Rich is like, I understand why you're making this choice. Thank you for helping me as much as you can. But then they're put in a different p- position, and Warlock's like, he sends away his son, and he says, well. Self has sworn that te- the Technarchy will never take life glow from anything ever again, but self can give it. Great moment. And then yeah, we, we get very... the sad powering down of goodbye self friends and he kind of collapses. And Richard Richard bursts onto the scene fully powered. World Mind says his catchphrase. And no- so Nova sets about to beating up this the the Technarch Sirdom. Yeah, the Technarch Sirdom. God, these these sci-fi words. <laughs> One day I will get it. I love sci-fi, but the words, the words kill me. But yeah. then, in a twist that everyone saw coming, Tyro comes back to beat up the Sirdom because he just couldn't stay away. But in a twist that everyone actually didn't see coming, uh, Tyro ends up hacking the Sirdom and like merging with him. Yeah. And- and uh, being in that huge body, which coincidentally, or not coincidentally, but fortunately, uh, is full of uh, life glow that the Sirodim had been collecting, and it's awful travels through the void, and it's enough to not only um, revive Warlock, so his sacrifice was very short-lived, but to heal Drax and Gamora. Yeah, and this is the moment where, when Gamora is cured, 
And she's like, why would you do that? I didn't want to be cured. This was this gave me a very specific purpose, and now I feel all of the guilt that you have reinstilled in that like you had I had come to learn to have by being with you, Richard. Like they still like they loved each other and they do still love each other, but under the under the not the glow, but under the the control of the trans trans mode virus all of the other things kind of got washed away and put behind a wall. So the love shined through in the evil way. It wasn't that they were in love because they were both evil. They were in love, but they were finally able to be compatible on on the same plane. But without the virus, Richard goes back to being this, not paragon, but he goes back to having the big conscience and and the the world, the universe, uh, the of a uh, universe-wide view and empathy and gamera doesn't have that or at least she didn't and her past and her sins are just weigh on her so much she's like, and she's like you took away the the thing that was allowing me to dull all of this how can i st-? and and there's that conflict of how can i love you when it hurts so much to be kind of giving parts of myself into this yeah and i see what you're saying because this this whole thing seemed like a pretty fun but um not very uh impactful sci-fi adventure but at the end of this you realize there's been like a lot of big emotions at play and they really tie it together beautifully i thought yeah and they even come back together and he rich is like we, we can learn like we can move forward together. It's like I I am here now. He's also learned. Like he's not trying to push her away. Like he understands why she was doing what she was doing, and understands better how to be there for her. Which is great. Yeah, that's great. Well, and and we're gonna um, jump away from them for a little while, but we're, they're not certainly not done with their presence in the story. No. As we continue back to Annihilation Conquest, the final two issues, issues five and six. Let's go. Okay, so first of all, immediately we start opening up with a flashback to Ultron's uh, time on Earth. And this does a great job of making this conflict feel personal. Because it just reminds you that while Ultron's a pretty simple villain, he's a robot that hates uh, organic life. um, Suddenly, all of this war that we're seeing becomes about, like, one individual's petty beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's see, where... I'm sorry, I had to switch back to... (laughs) back to issue five my notes are split so that we've got conquest three through five a bunch of the nova stuff and then conquest six so i'm I'm recalibrating all of that uh well we also get like a a specific expression of ultron's motivation here and that is that um he is anti-chaos and pro-order and um he likes planning and stuff and so uh he was constructed and built and he can be built and rebuilt and rebuilt until he's perfect but he doesn't like the chaos of life forming out there and um and this ends up being kind of uh connecting to all the adam warlock stuff because adam warlock is also a being who was built and uh, built to perfection and that's what the high evolutionary does too and so now all this like weird, creepy, sort of lurking in the background eugenic stuff really ties into Ultron's evil motivations in a big way. Yeah, and it's 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 good that it's a th- thematic resonance 
to why all this Kree stuff was here and why Ultron is involved with it. Because really, this is a Kree story. Every character, the High Evolutionary is is always working with either Kree ideals or working with Kree people. Adam Warlock was created by uh, the Kree, I think. Wraith is a Kree that doesn't have that's in between life and death or whatever the hell that means. Uh, it's the Kree empire that was taken over. The Supreme War is so important to it. Like all of these different, those different aspects and Ultron's creepy eugenics thing is tied in with all of everyone else's. And yeah, I, I guess I, I would, I wish I could say I wasn't a little bored by the backstory stuff. It's only three pages, like kind of establishing how did Ultron get get embroiled in it? And I really liked the way kind of the the Ultron takes over page goes. I love that. I love also how the, the designs change and how like it's nice and brief. But when the high evolutionary is like talking about, oh, Ultron on Earth, I'm like, all right, sure, shut up. Yeah, high evolutionary really sucks the wind out of a room, huh? He really does. Um, we also it gets implied and will be confirmed pretty shortly but the plan here is that Ultron wants to download into Adam Warlock's body it's uh, it's as close to perfection as he's ever seen yeah and I mean Warlock's back in his super cocoon and whatever and Philovel is captured and spends most of the rest of the issue captured not doing much except yelling at High Evolutionary being like we trusted you why would you trust the High Evolutionary he sucks uh, so strange bedfellows, dire circumstances. I know not. I guess I I understand like working with, but not trusting. Whatever the case, um, we cut back to the guardians. Um, who become the guardians. This is where the pacing gets like really frenetic. So we cut back to the guardians, but nothing happens on these couple of pages. The guardians are just um, being pursued, running around the Babel spire. Um. <laughs> Yeah, and then same thing happens, and then we cut to Ronan's gang, and um, and he's just sad that he has to blow up the planet. Yeah, but so that story hasn't really progressed that much. Yeah. Well, um, we do get then, that that nice that nice idea of oh, it only took two minutes to completely get rid of everyone on Ravenous's planet, yeah. or all of the all of the phalanx. Like that was a very kind of helped sell how formidable this fleet is supposed to be. Sure. So that we feel, um, we feel we're like, oh my god, they're gonna just wipe out the the all of Hala. Um, but then you were talking about how the flashback stuff uh, drags a little bit, but I actually really like this next one where we see um, Ultron before he's initiated the plan to take over Kree space. Uh, said it makes Korath the Pursuer the first of the selects. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he sends and and Ultron gets the intel on the High Evolutionary. And that's how long this has been going on. Ultron uh, has been working for a while to put these pieces into place. Yeah. Um, the Guardians go to rescue uh, Star-Lord, to rescue Quill. Um, and we find out that they have a big plan. Since they couldn't blow up the Babel Spire with bombs, they're instead going to blow up the Babel Spire by filling it with so much Groot. <laughs> All the Groot. Um... And again, I love this sequence. I love them escaping. I love Groot like blowing up the spire and them all having to jump around. It's great. And then once again, we have to cut back to our favorite buzzkill, the High Evolutionary, <laughs> and we get the big, the big reveal that everyone kind of saw. At least, uh, yeah, pretty well telegraphed that Ultron is now inside of uh, 
the Matt Ultra Magnus, not Ultra Magnus, Adam Warlock's body, and you know he's evil because his costume is slightly more red with lightning. Also, he, you know, zaps Phylavel into a wall, as you do. And he's got an evil grin, and yeah. all his text is turned, like, yellow and electronic looking. And then we also find out that Warlock, that Warlock Ultron wants basically an army of phalanx warlocks, and he reveals just this cocoon room and tells the High Evolutionary, you can't leave until you put all of the war- all of them into warlock bodies. Go. Love, love a cocoon room. Hmm? I love a good cocoon room. I love a good cocoon room. And that's the closing of issue five. And we get the final issue, issue six. So this is like real Ultimate Showdown stuff. And a lot of it is um, the ups and downs of the fight. And they're pretty cool. Yeah. And um, this is also why you want to read Nova first. Because on the second page, I guess it's the third, because the first one is a two-page spread. The Nova Corps, not the Nova Corps, but Nova, Warlock, Tyro, Tyro, Drax, and Gamera come busting out of a wormhole. And they bust into the space bubble. Yeah. Wild. And we also, yeah, which is uh, after seeing how, well, and the reason they can do that is because that's the exact moment that Groot destroyed the spire, which was powering the field. Exactly. And now all these pieces that we've been following for so many issues are really coming together in a neato way. I also like um, a bunch of uh, important other Marvel space factions are uh, seen very concerned about this, but confused. The and then it don't matter. Yeah, like the Badoon. But none of it matters because our heroes just like bust in. Yep. And then uh, we cut back to Guardians. They're kind of they're, they're decompressing after their big explosion and being saved. Groot is dead, but, you know, we've got the clipping, so that's not so sad. And then Mantis is like, it must suck having to watch three of your friends die. And, he, and he's like, yeah, kind of did. Wait a minute. Only two people died. And she's like, no, two people are dead. And this is the part where I die. And then she gets killed by just just a backhand to the head. Like, I, um, I think that was some poor, poor cartooning to sell that death. Yeah, although I think at the end of it, it turns out she's not dead. She's just uh, recovering in the hospital. No, I I missed that part. Um, I will will double check. We'll get there shortly. We'll but, get there uh, shortly. But why would she so say every... that? I guess she just likes being cryptic and dramatic. Yeah, that's just her. Yeah, and that's her prerogative. I respect her for that. Um, yeah. And then this whole thing just keeps on becoming the cavalry uh, showing up, just like they're yeah. all fighting Ultron as as Adam Warlock. And, like, Nova swoops in, and then Nova gets beat up, and then Warlock swoops in, then Warlock gets beat up. Phylavel um, finally gets to connect back to her bands because, you know, the whatever was, the the barrier started to come down. And, uh, and she reconnects with Moondragon, who she sees a ghost of, uh, definitely giving credence to your theory that her ghost is trapped in the bands. Yep, it has to be. It's the only way. Um, that way they'll always be together. Classically, as in many of these uh, Marvel stories, um, Ronan is is on the periphery, and he's like, "Nope, even though the tide might turn in this battle, I'm still gonna glass the whole surface of my planet." And then, what I... the the best part of that, though, of well, actually, I'm looking ahead. In between there, uh, Warlock purges Ultron from Adam Warlock 
in this great panel where he's just like, yeah, uh, the the artwork uh, is very good there. And I like um, the way uh, they all are like merging into this one golden black swirl. Yeah. And he faints. Ultron kind of just fucked off to another body. Well, they, they play this trick so many times for the rest of the story. Adam Warlock is like now restored and a good guy. But Ultron shoots up and freaking possesses Praxagora, who's been doing a whole lot of nothing except for being apparently a technopath, which I did not realize was in her portfolio. Yeah, she she goes full howl. She even says the line. Freaks out, blows up Wraith, who goes out like a chump. Um, And that takes down, yeah, apparently, goes- it takes down all the Wraith dust that was on the... the the Cree sentries. So the Cree sentries can be taken over, which was really heavily telegraphed. Although I didn't see that coming. I was like, oh, I guess they're going to have to figure out what to do with it. Oh, okay. This is how they're dealing with it. And then Praxagora blows up. Yeah. Although I do really like that the, the survivors are rescued by um, Colert doing a, a patented Sue Storm Invisible Woman uh, force field cube in space. Yeah. That's always a fun move. And he doesn't care about Praxagora at all. He's like, oh, no, she's dead. Oh, no. Yeah, he's like, oh, no, my girlfriend or whatever. Or whatever. But can't she – isn't her thing that she absorbs energy? I guess she was – Ultron was dispelling the energy on purpose. I guess. But she could absorb infinite energy. That is her whole thing. Um, I guess you should write to Abnett and Lanning and call them out for how dirty they do Praxagora. Yeah. Um, for the final stretch of this fight, though, Ultron is now in a giant, like, Mecha Godzilla, huge stomp the city Ultron body. And, like, great. Exactly. You nailed it. That's exactly what we need to do to, f- to close this out. Exactly. Um, and all the heroes are teaming up and fighting the big robot, and it's like a very competent one of those scenes. Um, but what I really appreciate is that the hero who gets to step up and, you know, hit do the final blow and be the main hero in this is Phyla. Yeah. She and is, I mean, we opened with her after Conquest, or after right? Prologue, because Prologue and, had um, to open with uh, good, old, good old Quill. I, no, no, we opened with Phyla in Prologue. Yeah, we opened with Phyla in Prologue, and um, in Annihilation, that was really about Richard's journey, about uh, going from being um, an amateur to being a veteran, and yep. Phyla was already a veteran, but this similarly poses her as, like, a mighty warrior whom the fate of the galaxy really hinges on. Yeah, Richard really has shit to do during it. He, like, we follow his adventures, but that's only because he had an ongoing series. Yeah, well, and he brought in a Warlock, and he... Uh, he had a little bit to do with the ending, but it's Philavel who strikes the final blow, and it's a great final blow. Exactly. And they seal they seal Ultra in, into the one body to make sure he can't do his, his body hopping thing. Although, I'm sure he has something so that he can come back. I mean, you know that Ultron's come back, so... Yeah, there's always something. Well, yeah, he came back and he merged with Hank Pym. That's, yeah, I believe that's his current status quo. Fucking um, stupid. But, uh, yeah, as the, as the final fight goes, like, it totally uh, was a great heroes uh, desperately fighting against a really cool villain. And then there's just, like, a couple pages of epilogue, which are nice. Um, Phyla writes a letter to Heather, uh, which she places on her gravestone at the end of it. But we get a um, a montage of, like, where everyone ended up after this war. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so Wraith and the Technarchs are going around curing as many Kree as they can and purging them of their robots. Ronan um, is sad. Ronan is sad, but uh, has returned to being a leader. Um, Richard and um, and Quill are with Raven, Gamora, and Drax, and they're very clearly pitching the Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> Bug is sitting with Mantis in the, in the hospital bed. There you so go. Th- there you go. Yeah, that's that's Mantis uh, in recovery. <laughs> Rocket um, is... Rocket wearing a little tank top and watering his good yeah. buddy Groot, which is adorable. And he's carrying like this little, a little, little uh, fork to, to till the till the ground. Yeah, that dude's working hard. You get the feeling he never gardened before he met Groot, but now he's really into it. Yeah. And then good pal. The Magus... Not Magus. Um, Adam Warlock. Adam Warlock walks in with his coat. His weird-ass coat. coat. And is talking to, to Philovel. Although... Philovel calls Heather an old friend. Although maybe that's just a way of trying to avoid answering uh, his question. Yeah. Instead of... Because if she said what she actually meant, it would have given the game away. She couldn't be cryptic. Plus, I'm pretty sure in 2007 there was an editorial mandate not to use the lesbians word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But this final conversation is uh, sweet between um, Adam and Phyla. You really understand um, that they've uh, connected on this and that they like spent a bunch of like really difficult moments for them on this and that they're going to continue in partnership moving forward. Yeah. And she leaves the stone. And I love the little detail that the dragon is actually blowing fire. Yeah, there's oh, the like an gravestone. eternal flame in yeah. the dragon-shaped gravestone. Dope gravestone for a dope lady. Moon dragon is cool. It's great. And in the back, but in the background, there's also a uh, like a snake person with a shark head. Like, look uh, right yeah. by the fire. Yeah, no. Uh, it turns out that the Cree graveyards are full of all sorts of diverse forms. Very weird. I thought this was Very an Earth weird. graveyard. That's what was throwing me. Um, I know. I think we're still in Cree space, but that about concludes Annihilation Conquest. Um, yeah, a lot of issues today, my dude. So, Elias, looking back at where we started and where we come, uh, how is this working for you? How does uh, the trajectory of this corner of Marvel space feel? It's feeling a lot bigger than it was before, and it's feeling a lot more populated, which is nice. Uh, I think part of that's also because there was this uh, Annihilation was kind of a period of deconstruction it was a lot of you know things blowing up things going kablooey things disappearing changing etc etc and now we're starting to build that back up we're starting to see well how are the Kree responding and like there's still these conflicts and there's still a lot of like struggle but there's not a lot of the same wholesale destruction there's a lot of change, and I'm liking I'm liking that. I'm liking the characters that are being introduced or reintroduced, uh, and I don't know. I'm excited to see more of the adventures outside of universe destroying stakes, because we've gotten a bunch of that now. And I'm like, okay, we could we could take it back a few notches. I don't need Annihilation three murder of i don't know the badoon well well good news for you um next time we're going to be picking up with um the what's be in between the big space wars uh, uh, a section that i'm just going to call guardians of the galaxy part one 
And uh, for next time, we will be reading Guardians of the Galaxy uh, by Abnett and Lanning, number 1 to 6, and Nova, also by Abnett and Lanning, numbers 13 to 22. It's a lot of issues again, but it's just two big stretches. It doesn't interplay at all. It's two isolated ongoing series. And um, it gives us a little bit of time to take stock and um, figure out the new status quo before we blow it all up again. (laughs) I'm assuming that Nova, uh, it splits between volumes three and four. Uh, Yes, I I believe in trade that is the case. Yeah. I don't believe... So for anyone who's reading this in trade, the first volume is going to be if I can find it. So so the it's going to be volume 1 of Guardians of the Galaxy of this I think it's 2008. Yes, that's correct. I think it's the 2008 first volume, volume 3 of Nova. Uh, and I believe also vol- the first part of Volume 4 of Nova. No, all of Volume 4 of Nova. It ends with Issue 22, which is odd. I don't think there's a Volume 5 of Nova, is there? Um, oh, no, I there have... it is. It's just called War of Kings. <laughs> that makes sense. There we go. Uh, yes, yeah, so, th- so this is simply Guardians of the Galaxy number 1 to 6, which is the first volume, and Nova's number 13 to 22. You can read them digitally. You can read them in trade. I will be reading them in trade, and there's yeah, whatever whatever you dig. You um, dig. Returning to this, Jake, what did you think? Uh, I really loved rereading this. Um, I I'm feeling the age of this comic, but <laughs> it's still so. Um, it it's got this really special energy that I really love going back to. You, I really feel it coming together. I like the chaos of it and how it, it's clear that they're figuring it out as they go. They didn't quite know what they were doing um, and how it was so influential that pretty much for years after this, people were just rehashing this run over and over again because they didn't know what else to do with these characters um, because it was so classic. And with a lot of classic comics, there's a lot of uh, strange elements that uh, play weird to modern readers, and this is no exception, but I really... Um, think it deserves the classic status. It's not just, I, I, I'm really feeling like it goes beyond just being my personal fave, which it is. Um, I think it, it definitely deserves to be included with uh, read, readings that of like uh, Ultron Imperative and Dark Phoenix Saga and Korvac Saga, just like all the famous old Marvel stories. You gotta include Annihilation Conquest. Even with Wraith? Um, I mean, yeah, you could skip Wraith, you guys. <laughs> So, I can't fake it. <laughs> so where can they find you out on the larger interwebs, Jake? Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I tweet as at uh, rambling underscore moose. And uh, you can find me writing for multiversitycomics.com, which is a pretty great website. And I write the Mutantversity column regularly. And by the summer, I will be reviewing the fourth season of Attack on Titan, which should be a, a lively discussion with our commentariat. Uh, what about you, Elias? Uh, where can you be found? I can be found on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Uh, thankfully, it has not been invaded by the uh, Technarchs or the Transmode virus, so my name should stay the same, and it won't just become evil Quetzalish. 
And you can also find me writing out here at multiversitycomics.com, which by the time this episode comes out, I will be reviewing Babylon 5 once again, season four. Uh, and I'll be work- working my way through uh, the most shonen to ever shonen Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba. So that wow. should be fun. Uh, I am anticipating many angry texts from people about what I get wrong, but we shall find out. Those anime fans. Yeah, uh, this was a good one. This was a long one. Uh, We are hoping you're still with us, and we will see you next time. 